At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Nicholson. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard. Dedication. This faithful but unpretending record of a remarkable adventure is hereby respectfully dedicated by the narrator, Alan Quartermain, to all the big and little boys who read it. Preparer's Note. This was typed from a 1907 edition published by Castle and Company Limited. Author's Note. The author ventures to take this opportunity to thank his readers for the kind reception they have accorded to the successive editions of this tale during the last twelve years. He hopes that in its present form it will fall into the hands of an even wider public, and that in years to come it may continue to afford amusement to those who are still young enough at heart to love a story of treasure, war, and wild adventure. Ditchingham, 11 March, 1898 Postscriptum. Now, in 1907, on the occasion of the issue of this edition, I can only add how glad I am that my romance should continue to please so many readers. Imagination has been verified by fact. The King Solomon's minds I dreamed of have been discovered, and are putting out their gold once more. And, according to the latest reports, their diamonds also. The Cucuanas, or rather the Matebele, have been tamed by the white man's bullets, but still there seem to be many who find pleasure in these simple pages. That they may continue to do so even to the third and fourth generation, or perhaps longer still, would, I am sure, be the hope of our old and departed friend, Alan Quartermain. H. Ryder Haggard. Ditchingham, 1907. Introduction. Now that this book is printed and about to be given to the world, a sense of its shortcomings both in style and content weighs very heavily upon me. As regards the latter, I can only say that it does not pretend to be a full account of everything we did and saw. There are many things connected with our journey into Kukuwana land that I should have liked to dwell upon at length, which, as it is, have been scarcely alluded to. Amongst these are the curious legends which I collected about the chain armor that saved us from destruction in the great battle of Lu, and also about the silent ones, or colossi, at the mouth of the stalactite cave. Again, if I had given way to my own impulses, I should have wished to go into the differences, some of which are to my mind very suggestive, between the Zulu and Kukuana dialects. Also, a few pages might have been given up profitably to the consideration of the indigenous flora and fauna of Kukuanalan. Note, I discovered eight varieties of antelope, 
with which I was previously totally unacquainted, and many new species of plants, for the most part of the bulbous tribe. A.Q. Then there remains the most interesting subject, that as it is, has only been touched on incidentally, of the magnificent system of military organization in force in that country, which in my opinion is much superior to that inaugurated by Chaka in Zululand, and as much as it permits of even more rapid mobilization, and does not necessitate the employment of the pernicious system of enforced celibacy. Lastly, I have scarcely spoken of the domestic and family customs of the Kukuanas, many of which are exceedingly quaint, or of their proficiency in the art of smelting and welding metals. This science they carry to considerable perfection, of which a good example is to be seen in their tolas, or heavy throwing knives, the backs of these weapons being made of hammered iron, and the edges of beautiful steel welded with great skill on the iron frame. The fact of the matter is, I thought, with Sir Henry Curtis and Captain Good, that the best plan would be to tell my story in a plain, straightforward manner, and to leave these matters to be dealt with subsequently in whatever way may ultimately appear to be desirable. In the meanwhile, I shall, of course, be delighted to give all information in my power to anybody interested in such things. And now it only remains for me to offer apologies for my blunt way of writing. I can but say in excuse of it that I am more accustomed to handle a rifle than a pen, and cannot make any pretense to the grand literary flights and flourishes which I see in novels, for sometimes I like to read a novel. I suppose they, the flights and flourishes, are desirable, and I regret not being able to supply them. But at the same time, I cannot help thinking that simple things are always the most impressive and that books are easier to understand when they are written in plain language, though perhaps I have no right to set up an opinion on such a matter. A sharp spear, runs the Kukuana saying, needs no polish. And on the same principle I venture to hope that a true story, however strange it may be, does not require to be decked out in fine words. Alan Quatermain King Solomon's Mines Chapter 1. I Meet Henry Curtis It is a curious thing that at my age, 55, last birthday, I should find myself taking up a pen to try and write a history. I wonder what sort of history it will be when I have finished it, if ever I come to the end of the trip. I have done a good many things in my life, which seems a long one to me, owing to my having begun work so young, perhaps. At an age when other boys are at school, I was earning my living as a trader in the old colony. I have been trading, hunting, fighting, or mining ever since. And yet it is only eight months ago that I made my pile. It is a big pile now that I have got it. I don't yet know how big. But I do not think I would go through the last fifteen or sixteen months again for it. No, not if I knew that I should come out safe at the end, pile and all. But then I am a timid man and dislike violence. Moreover, I am almost sick of adventure. I wonder why I am going to write this book. It is not in my line. I am not a literary man, though very devoted to the Old Testament and also to the Ingoldsby Legends.
Let me try to set down my reasons, just to see if I have any. First reason, because Sir Henry Curtis and Captain John Good asked me. Second reason, because I am laid up here at Durban with the pain in my left leg. Ever since that confounded lion got hold of me, I have been liable to this trouble, and rather bad just now. It makes me limp more than ever. There must be some poison in a lion's teeth. Otherwise, how is it that when your wounds are healed, they break out again, generally mark you at the same time of year that you got your mauling? It is a hard thing when one has shot sixty-five lions or more, as I have in the course of my life, that the sixty-sixth should chew your leg like a quid of tobacco. Breaks the routine of the thing, and putting other considerations aside, I am an orderly man and don't like that. This is, by the way, third reason, because I want my boy Harry, who is over there at the hospital in London studying to become a doctor, to have something to amuse him and keep him out of mischief for a week or so. Hospital work must sometimes pall and grow rather dull, for even of cutting up dead bodies there may come satiety, and as this little history will not be dull, whatever else it may be, it will put a little life into things for a day or two while Harry is reading of our adventures. Fourth reason, and last, because I am going to tell the strangest story that I remember. It may seem a queer thing to say, especially considering there was no woman in it, except for Lata. Stop, though, there is Gogula, if she was a woman and not a fiend. But she was a hundred at least, and therefore not marriageable, so I don't count her. At any rate, I can safely say that there is not a petticoat in the whole history. Well, I had better come to the yoke. It is a stiff place, and I feel as though I were bogged up to the axle. But suches, suches, as the Boers say, I'm sure I don't know how they spell it, softly does it. A strong team will come through at last, that is, if they are not too poor. You can never do anything with poor oxen. Now to make a start. I, Alan Quatermain, of Durban, Natal, gentlemen, make oath and say, that's how I headed my deposition before the magistrate about poor Kivas and Ventvogel's sad deaths. But somehow it doesn't seem quite the right way to begin a book. And besides, am I a gentleman? What is a gentleman? I don't quite know. And yet I have had to do with niggers. No, I will scratch out that word niggers, for I do not like it. I have known natives who are. And so you will say, Harry, my boy, before you have done with this tale. And I have known mean whites with lots of money and fresh out from home, too, who are not. At any rate, I was born a gentleman, though I have been nothing but a poor traveling trader and hunter all my life. Whether I have remained so, I know not. You must judge of that. Heaven knows I've tried. I have killed many men in my time, yet I have never slain wantonly or stained my hand in innocent blood, but only in self-defense. The Almighty gave us our lives, and I suppose he meant us to defend them. At least I have always acted on that, and I hope it will not be brought up against me when my clock strikes. 
"'There, there, it is a cruel and wicked world, "'and for a timid man I have been mixed up in a great deal of fighting. "'I cannot tell the rights of it, "'but at any rate I have never stolen, "'though once I cheated a Kaffir out of a herd of cattle. "'But then he had done me a dirty turn, "'and it has troubled me ever since into the bargain. "'Well, it is eighteen months or so ago "'since first I met Sir Henry Curtis and Captain Good.' It was in this way. I had been up elephant hunting beyond Bamanguato and had met with bad luck. Everything went wrong that trip, and to top up with it, I got the fever badly. So as soon as I was well enough, I trekked down to the diamond fields, sold such ivory as I had, together with my wagon and oxen, discharged my hunters, and took the postcard to the Cape. After spending a week in Cape Town, finding that they overcharged me at the hotel, and having seen everything there was to see, including the botanical gardens, which seemed to me likely to confer a great benefit on the country, and the new houses of Parliament, which I expect will do nothing of the sort, I determined to go back to Natal by the Dunkeld, then lying at the docks waiting for the Edinburgh Castle due in from England. I took my berth and went aboard. And that afternoon the Natal passengers from the Edinburgh Castle transhipped, and we weighed and put to sea. Among these passengers who came on board, there were two who excited my curiosity. One, a gentleman of about thirty, was perhaps the biggest chested and longest armed man I ever saw. He had yellow hair, a thick yellow beard, clear-cut features and large gray eyes set deep in his head. I never saw a finer-looking man, and somehow he reminded me of an ancient Dane. Not that I know much of ancient Danes, though I knew a modern Dane who did me out of ten pounds. But I remember once seeing a picture of some of those gentry who they were drinking out of big horns and their long hair hung down their backs. As I looked at my friend standing there by the companion ladder, I thought that if he only let his grow a little, put one of those chain shirts onto his great shoulders, and took hold of a battle-axe and a horn mug, he might have sat as a model for that picture. By the way, it is a curious thing, and just shows how the blood will out. I discovered afterwards that Sir Henry Curtis, for that was the big man's name, is of Danish blood. Note. Mr. Quartermain's ideas about ancient Danes seems to be rather confused. We have always understood that they were dark-haired people. Probably he was thinking of Saxons. Editor. He also reminded me strongly of somebody else, but at the time I could not remember who it was. The other man who stood talking to Sir Henry was stout and dark and of quite a different cut. I suspected at once that he was a naval officer. I don't know why, but it is difficult to mistake a Navy man. I have gone shooting trips with several of them in the course of my life, and they have always proved themselves the best and bravest and nicest fellows I ever met, though sadly given, some of them, to the use of profane language. I ask a page or two back, what is a gentleman? I'll answer the question now. A royal naval officer is, in a general sort of way. Though, of course, there may be a black sheep among them here and there. I fancy it is just the wide seas and the breath of God's winds 
that wash their hearts and blow the bitterness out of their minds and make them what men ought to be. Well, to return, I proved right again. I ascertained that the dark man was a naval officer, a lieutenant of 31, who after 17 years' service had been turned out of Her Majesty's employ with the barren honor of a commander's rank, because it was impossible that he should be promoted. This is what people who serve the Queen have to expect, to be shot out into the cold world, to find a living, just when they are beginning really to understand their work and to reach the prime of life. I suppose they don't mind it, but for my part I had rather earn my bread as a hunter. One's half-pence are scarce, perhaps, but you do not get so many kicks. The officer's name, I found out, by referring to the passengers' lists, was Good, Captain John Good. He was broad, of medium height, dark, stout, and rather a curious man to look at. He was so very neat and so very clean-shaved, and he always wore an eyeglass in his right eye. It seemed to grow there, for it had no string, and he never took it out except to wipe it. At first I thought he used to sleep in it, but afterwards I found that this was a mistake. He put it in his trouser pocket when he went to bed, together with his false teeth, of which he had two beautiful sets, that, my own being none of the best, have often caused me to break the Tenth Commandment. But I am anticipating. Soon after we had got under way, evening closed in, and brought with it very dirty weather. A keen breeze sprung up off the land, and a kind of aggravated scotch mist soon drove everybody from the deck. As for the Dunkeld, she is a flat-bottom punt, and going up light as she was, she rolled very heavily. It almost seemed as though she would go right over, but she never did. It was quite impossible to walk about, so I stood near the engines where it was warm, and amused myself with watching the pendulum which was fixed opposite to me, swinging slowly backwards and forwards as the vessel rolled, and marking the angle she touched. That pendulum's wrong. It is not properly weighted, suddenly said a somewhat testy voice at my shoulder. Looking round, I saw the naval officer whom I had noticed when the passengers came aboard. Indeed, what makes you think so? I asked. Think so? I don't think at all. Why, there, as she righted herself after a roll, if the ship had really rolled to the degree that thing pointed to, then she never would have rolled again, that's all. But it is just like these merchant skippers. They are always so confoundedly careless. Just then the dinner bell rang, and I was not sorry, for it is a dreadful thing to have to listen to an officer of the Royal Navy when he gets on to that subject. I only know one worse thing, and that is to hear a merchant skipper express his candid opinion of officers of the Royal Navy. Captain Good and I went down to dinner together, and there we found Sir Henry Curtis already seated. He and Captain Good were placed together, and I sat opposite to them. The captain and I soon fell into talk about shooting and what not, he asking me many questions, for he is very inquisitive about all sorts of things, and I answering them as well as I could. Presently he got on to elephants. "'Ah, sir,' called out somebody who was sitting near me, "'you've reached the right man for that. Hunter Quartermain should be able to tell you about elephants if anybody can.' 
Sir Henry, who had been sitting quite quiet listening to our talk, startled visibly. "'Excuse me, sir,' he said, leaning forward across the table and speaking in a low, deep voice, a very suitable voice, it seemed to me, to come out of those great lungs. "'Excuse me, sir, but is your name Alan Quatermain?' I said that it was. The big man made no further remark, but I heard him mutter, "'Fortunate!' into his beard. Presently dinner came to an end, and as we were leaving the saloon, Sir Henry strolled up and asked me if I would come into his cabin to smoke a pipe. I accepted, and he led the way to the Dunkel deck cabin, and a very good cabin it is. It had been two cabins, but when Sir Garnet Wolseley, or one of those big swells, went down the coast in the Dunkeld, they knocked away the partition and have never put it up again. There was a sofa in the cabin and a little table in front of it. Sir Henry sent the steward for a bottle of whiskey, and the three of us sat down and lit our pipes. "'Mr. Quartermain,' said Sir Henry Curtis, when the man had brought the whiskey and lit the lamp, "'the year before last, about this time, you were, I believe, at a place called Bamanguato, to the north of the Transvaal.' I was, I answered, rather surprised that this gentleman should be so well acquainted with my movements, which were not, so far as I was aware, considered of general interest. You were trading up there, were you not? put in Captain Good in his quick way. I was. I took a wagon load of goods, made a camp outside the settlement, and stopped till I had sold them. Sir Henry was sitting opposite to me in a Madeira chair, his arms leaning on the table. He now looked up, fixing his large gray eyes full upon my face. There was a curious anxiety in them, I thought. Did you happen to meet a man called Neville there? Oh, yes, he outspanned alongside of me for a fortnight to rest his oxen before going on to the interior. I had a letter from a lawyer a few months back asking me if I knew what had become of him, which I answered to the best of my ability at the time. Yes, said Sir Henry, your letter was forwarded to me. You said in it that the gentleman called Neville left Bamanguato at the beginning of May in a wagon with his driver, a voorlooper, and a kaffir hunter called Jim, announcing his intention of trekking, if possible, as far as Inyati, the extreme trading post in the Matabele country, where he would sell his oxen and proceed on foot. You also said that he did sell his wagon, for six months afterwards you saw the wagon in the possession of a Portuguese trader, who told you that he had bought it at Inyati from a white man whose name he had forgotten, and that he believed the white man with the native servant had started off for the interior on a shooting trip. Yes, then came a pause. Mr. Quartermain, said Sir Henry suddenly, I suppose you know or can guess nothing more of the reasons of my, of Mr. Neville's journey to the northward, or as to what point that journey was directed. I heard something, I answered, and stopped. The subject was one which I did not care to discuss. Sir Henry and Captain Good looked at each other, and Captain Good nodded. Mr. Quartermain, went on the former, I am going to tell you a story and ask your advice, and perhaps your assistance. 
The agent who forwarded me your letter told me that I might rely on it implicitly, as you were, he said, well known and universally respected in Natal, and especially noted for your discretion. I bowed and drank some whiskey and water to hide my confusion, for I am a modest man, and Sir Henry went on. Mr. Neville was my brother. Oh, I said, starting, for now I knew of whom Sir Henry had reminded me when first I saw him. His brother was a much smaller man and had a dark beard, but now that I thought of it, he possessed eyes of the same shade of gray and with the same keen look in them. The features, too, were not unlike. He was, went on Sir Henry, my only and younger brother, until five years ago I do not suppose that we were ever a month away from each other. But just about five years ago a misfortune befell us, as sometimes does happen in families. We quarreled bitterly, and I behaved unjustly to my brother in my anger. Here Captain Good nodded his head vigorously to himself. The ship gave a big roll just then, so that the looking-glass which was fixed opposite us to starboard was for a moment nearly over our heads, and as I was sitting with my hands in my pockets and staring upwards, I could see him nodding like anything. As I dare say you know, went on Sir Henry, if a man dies intestate and has no property but land, real property is called in England, it all descends to his eldest son. It so happened that just at the time when we quarreled, our father died intestate. He had put off making his will until it was too late. The result was that my brother, who had not been brought up to any profession, was left without a penny. Of course, it would have been my duty to provide for him, but at the time the quarrel between us was so bitter that I did not, to my shame, I say it, and he sighed deeply, offer to do anything. It was not that I grudged him justice, but I waited for him to make advances, and he made none. I am sorry to trouble you with all this, Mr. Quartermain, but I must make things clear. Eh, good? Quite so, quite so, said the captain. Mr. Quartermain will, I am sure, keep this history to himself. Of course, said I, for I rather pride myself on my discretion, for which, as Sir Henry had heard, I have some repute. Well, went on Sir Henry, my brother had a few hundred pounds to his account at the time. Without saying anything to me, he drew out this paltry sum and having adopted the name of Neville, started off for South Africa in the wild hope of making a fortune. This I learned afterwards. Some three years passed, and I heard nothing of my brother, though I wrote several times. Doubtless the letters never reached him. But as time went on, I grew more and more troubled about him. I found out, Mr. Quatermain, that blood is thicker than water. That's true, said I, thinking of my boy Harry. I found out, Mr. Quatermain, that I would have given half my fortune to know that my brother George, the only relation I possess, was safe and well, and that I should see him again. But you never did, Curtis jerked out Captain Good, glancing at the big man's face. Well, Mr. Quartermain, 
as time went on, I became more and more anxious to find out if my brother was alive or dead, and if alive, to get him home again. I set inquiries on foot, and your letter was one of the results. So far as it went, it was satisfactory, for it showed that till lately George was alive, but it did not go far enough. So, to cut a long story short, I made up my mind to come out and look for him myself, and Captain Good was so kind as to come with me. Yes, said the captain, nothing else to do, you see. Turned out by my lords of the admiralty to starve on half pay. And now, perhaps, sir, you will tell us what you know or have heard of the gentleman called Neville. End of chapter 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 2 The Legend of Solomon's Mines What was it that you heard about my brother's journey at Bamangwato? asked Sir Henry as I paused to fill my pipe before replying to Captain Good. "'I heard this,' I answered, "'and I have never mentioned it to a soul till today. "'I heard that he was starting for Solomon's Mines.' "'Solomon's Mines?' ejaculated both my hearers at once. "'Where are they?' "'I don't know,' I said. "'I know where they are said to be.' Once I saw the peaks of the mountains that border them, but there were a hundred and thirty miles of desert between me and them, and I am not aware that any white man ever got across it save one. But perhaps the best thing I can do is tell you the legend of Solomon's Mines as I know it, you passing your word not to reveal anything I tell you without asking my permission. Do you agree to that? I have my reasons for asking." Sir Henry nodded, and Captain Good replied, Certainly, certainly. Well, I began, as you may guess, generally speaking, elephant hunters are a rough set of men who do not always trouble themselves with much beyond the facts of life and the ways of kaffirs. But here and there you meet a man who takes the trouble to collect traditions from the natives, and tries to make out a little piece of the history of this dark land. It was such a man as this who first told me the legend of Solomon's Mines, now a matter of nearly thirty years ago. That was when I was on my first elephant hunt in the Matalebe country. His name was Evans, and he was killed the following year, poor fellow, by a wounded buffalo, and lies buried near the Zambezi Falls. I was telling Evans one night, I remember, of some wonderful workings I had found whilst hunting Kuru and Iland in what is now the Leidenberg district of the Transvaal. I see they have come across these workings again lately in prospecting for gold, but I knew of them years ago. There is a great wide wagon road cut out of the solid rock and leading to the mouth of the working or gallery. 
Inside the mouth of this gallery are stacks of gold quartz piled up ready for roasting, which shows that the workers, whoever they were, must have left in a hurry. Also, about twenty paces in, the gallery is built across, and a beautiful bit of masonry it is. I said Evans, but I will spin you a queerer yarn than that. And he went on to tell me how he had found in the far interior a ruined city, which he believed to be the Ophir of the Bible. And by the way, other more learned men have said the same long since poor Evans' time. I was, I remember, listening open-eared to all these wonders, for I was young at the time, and this story of an ancient civilization and of the treasures which those old Jewish or Phoenician adventurers used to extract from a country long since lapsed into the darkest barbarism took a great hold upon my imagination, when suddenly he said to me, Lad, did you ever hear of the Suleiman Mountains? up to the northwest of the Mushakulumbwe country. I told him I never had. Ah, well, he said, that is where Solomon really had his mines, his diamond mines, I mean. How do you know that, I asked. Know it? Why, what is Suleiman but a corruption of Solomon? Suleiman is the Arabic form of Solomon, editor's note. Besides, an old Isanusi, or witch-doctoress, up in the Manika country told me all about it. She said that the people who lived across those mountains were a branch of the Zulus, speaking a dialect of Zulu, but finer and bigger men even, that there lived among them great wizards who had learnt their art from white men when all the world was dark and who had the secret of a wonderful mine of bright stones. Well, I laughed at the story at the time, though it interested me, for the diamond fields were not discovered then. But poor Evans went off and was killed, and for twenty years I never thought any more of the matter. However, just twenty years afterwards, and that is a long time, gentlemen, an elephant hunter does not often live for twenty years at his business, I heard something more definite about Suleiman's mountains and the country which lies beyond them. I was up beyond the Manika country at a place called Sitanda's Kral, and a miserable place it was, for a man could get nothing to eat, and there was but little game about. I had an attack of fever and was in a bad way generally, when one day a Portuguese arrived with a single companion, a half-breed, now, I know your low-class de Lago Portuguese well. There is no greater devil unhung in a general way, battening as he does upon human agony and flesh in the shape of slaves. But this was quite a different type of man to the mean fellows whom I had been accustomed to meet. Indeed, in appearance, he reminded me more of the polite doms I have read about, for he was tall and thin, with large dark eyes and curling gray mustachios. We talked together for a while, for he could speak broken English, and I understood a little Portuguese, and he told me that his name was José Silvestre, and that he had a place near De Lagoa Bay. 
When he went on next day with his half-breed companion, he said goodbye, taking off his hat quite in the old style. Goodbye, senor, he said. If we ever meet again, I shall be the richest man in the world, and I will remember you. I laughed a little. I was too weak to laugh much, and watched him strike out for the great desert to the west, wondering if he was mad or what he thought he was going to find there. A week passed, and I got the better of my fever. One evening I was sitting on the ground in front of the little tent I had with me, chewing the last leg of a miserable fowl I had bought from a native for a bit of cloth worth twenty fowls, and staring at the hot red sun sinking down over the desert, when suddenly I saw a figure, apparently that of a European, for it wore a coat. On the slope of the rising ground opposite to me, about three hundred yards away, the figure crept along on its hands and knees, then it got up and staggered forward a few yards on its legs, only to fall and crawl again. Seeing that it must be somebody in distress, I sent one of my hunters to help him, and presently he arrived, and who do you suppose it turned out to be? Jose Silvestre, of course, said Captain Good. Yes, Jose Silvestre or rather his skeleton and a little skin. His face was a bright yellow with bilious fever, and his large dark eyes stood nearly out of his head, for all the flesh had gone. There was nothing but yellow parchment-like skin, white hair, and the gaunt bones sticking up beneath. Water for the sake of Christ, water, he moaned, and I saw that his lips were cracked, and his tongue which protruded between them, was swollen and blackish. I gave him water with a little milk in it, and he drank it in great gulps, two quarts or so, without stopping. I would not let him have any more. Then the fever took him again, and he fell down and began to rave about Suleiman's mountains and the diamonds and the desert. I carried him into the tent and did what I could for him, which was little enough, but I saw how it must end. About eleven o'clock he grew quieter, and I lay down for a little rest and went to sleep. At dawn I woke again, and in the half-light saw Sylvester sitting up, a strange gaunt form, and gazing out towards the desert. Presently the first ray of the sun shot right across the wide plain before us till it reached the far-away crest of one of the tallest of the Suleiman Mountains more than a hundred miles away. There it is, cried the dying man in Portuguese, and pointing with his long, thin arm. But I shall never reach it, never. No one will ever reach it. Suddenly he paused and seemed to take a resolution. Friend, he said, turning towards me, are you there? My eyes grow dark. Yes, I said, yes, lie down now and rest. Aye, he answered, I shall rest soon. I have time to rest all eternity. Listen, I am dying. You have been good to me. I will pass you the writing. Perhaps you will get there if you can live to pass the desert, which has killed my poor servant and me. 
Then he groped in his shirt and brought out what I thought was a Boer tobacco pouch made of the skin of the Swartvet pens or sable antelope. It was fastened with a little strip of hide, what we call a rimpi, and this he tried to loose, but could not. He handed it to me. Untie it, he said. I did so, and extracted a bit of torn yellow linen, on which something was written in rusty letters. Inside this rag was a paper. Then he went on feebly, for he was growing weak. The paper has all that is on the linen. It took me years to read. Listen, my ancestor, a political refugee from Lisbon, and one of the first Portuguese who landed on these shores, wrote that when he was dying on those mountains which no white foot ever pressed before or since. His name was José da Silvestra, and he lived three hundred years ago. His slave, who waited for him on this side of the mountains, found him dead and brought the writing home to Delagoa. It has been in the family ever since, but none have cared to read it till at last I did, and I have lost my life over it. But another may succeed and become the richest man in the world. The richest man in the world. Only give it to no one, Signor. Go yourself. Then he began to wander again, and in an hour it was all over. God rest him. He died very quietly, and I buried him deep with big boulders on his breast, so I do not think that the jackals can have dug him up. And then I came away. Aye, but the document, said Sir Henry in a tone of deep interest. Yes, the document. What was in it? added the captain. Well, gentlemen, if you like, I will tell you. I have never showed it to anybody yet, except to a drunken old Portuguese trader who translated it for me and had forgotten all about it by the next morning. The original rag is at my home in Durban, together with poor Dom Jose's translation. But I have the English rendering in my pocketbook and a facsimile of the map, if it can be called a map. Here it is. I, Jose da Silvestra, who am now dying of hunger in the little cave here. No snow is on the north side of the nipple of the southernmost of the two mountains. I have named Sheba's breasts. Write this in the year 1590, with a cleft bone upon a remnant of my raiment, my blood being the ink. If my slave should find it when he comes and should bring it to Delagoa, let my friend, name illegible, Bring the matters to the knowledge of the king, that he may send an army which, if they live through the desert and the mountains, and can overcome the brave Cucuanes and their devilish arts, to which end many priests should be brought, will make him the richest king since Solomon. With my own eyes I have seen the countless diamonds stored in Solomon's treasure chamber behind the white death. But through the treachery of Gagool, the witch-finder, I may bring naught away, scarcely my life. Let him who comes follow the map, and climb the snow of Sheba's left breast till he reaches the nipple, 
on the north side of which is the great road Solomon made, from whence three days' journey to the king's palace. Let him kill Gagul. Pray for my soul. Farewell. Jose de Silvestra. When I had finished reading the above and shown the copy of the map drawn by the dying hand of the old Dom with his blood for ink, there followed a silence of astonishment. Well, said Captain Good, I have been round the world twice and put in at most ports, but may I be hung for a mutineer if ever I heard a yarn like this out of a story-book or in it either, for the matter of that. It's a queer tale, Mr. Quatermain, said Sir Henry. I suppose you're not hoaxing us. It is, I know, sometimes thought allowable to take in a greenhorn. If you think that, Sir Henry, I said, much put out in pocketing my paper, for I do not like to be thought one of those silly fellows who consider it witty to tell lies, and who are forever boasting to newcomers of extraordinary hunting adventures which never happened. If you think that, why, there is an end to the matter. And I rose to go. Sir Henry laid his large hand upon my shoulder. Sit down, Mr. Quatermain, he said. I beg your pardon. I see very well that you do not wish to deceive us, but the story sounded so strange that I could hardly believe it. "'You shall see the original map in writing when we reach Durban,' I answered, somewhat mollified. "'For real, but,' I went on, "'I have not told you about your brother. "'I knew the man Jim who was with him. "'He was a Bikuana by birth, a good hunter, "'and for a native a very clever man. "'That morning on which Mr. Neville was starting, "'I saw Jim standing by my wagon "'and cutting up tobacco on the Disselboom. Jim, said I, where are you off to on this trip? Is it elephants? No, boss, he answered. We're after something much more than ivory. And what might that be, I said, for I was curious. Is it gold? No, boss, something worth more than gold, and he grinned. I asked no more questions, for I did not like to lower my dignity by seeming inquisitive, but I was puzzled. Presently Jim finished cutting his tobacco. Boss, said he. I took no notice. Boss, said he again. Hey, boy, what is it? I asked. Boss, we are going after diamonds. Diamonds? Why, then, you are steering in the wrong direction. You should head for the fields. Boss, have you ever heard of Suleimansburg? That is Solomon's Mountains, Sir Henry. Aye. Have you ever heard of the diamonds there? I have heard a foolish story, Jim. It is no story, boss. Once I knew a woman who came from there and reached Natal with her child. She told me. She is dead now. Your master will feed the Osvogels, that is, vultures. Jim, if he tries to reach Suleiman's country, and so will you if they can get any pickings off your worthless old carcass, said I. He grinned. Mayhap, boss, man must die. I'd rather like to try a new country myself. The elephants are getting worked out about. Half an hour after that, 
I saw Neville's wagon move off. Presently Jim came back running. Goodbye, boss, he said. I didn't like to start without bidding you goodbye, for I dare say you were right, and that we shall never trek south again. Is your master really going to Suleimansburg, Jim, or are you lying? No, he answered. He is going. He told me he was bound to make his fortune somehow, or try to, so he might as well have a fling for the diamonds. Oh, I said, wait a bit, Jim. Will you take a note to your master, Jim, and promise not to give it to him till you reach Inyati, which was some hundred miles off? Yes, boss. So I took a scrap of paper and wrote on it, Let him who comes climb the snow of Sheba's left breast till he reaches the nipple, on the north side of which is Solomon's great road. Now, Jim, I said, when you give this to your master, tell him he had better follow the advice on it implicitly. You are not to give it to him now, because I don't want him back asking me questions, which I won't answer. Now be off, you idle fellow. The wagon is nearly out of sight. Jim took the note and went. And that is all I know about your brother, Sir Henry. But I am much afraid. Mr. Quartermain, said Sir Henry, I am going to look for my brother. I am going to trace him to Suleiman's mountains and over them, if necessary, till I find him or until I know that he is dead. Will you come with me? I am, as I think I have said, a cautious man, indeed a timid one, and this suggestion frightened me. It seemed to me that to undertake such a journey would be to go to certain death, and putting other considerations aside, as I had a son to support, I could not afford to die just then. No thank you, Sir Henry, I think I had rather not, I answered. I am too old for wild goose chases of that sort. "'and we should only end up like my poor friend Sylvestre. "'I have a son dependent on me, "'so I cannot afford to risk my life foolishly.' "'Both Sir Henry and Captain Good looked very disappointed. "'Mr. Quartermain,' said the former, "'I am well off, and I am bent upon this business. "'You may put the remuneration for your services "'at whatever figure you like in reason,' and it shall be paid over to you before we start. Moreover, I will arrange, in the event of anything untoward happening to us or to you, that your son shall be suitably provided for. You will see from this offer how necessary I think your presence. Also, if we by chance should reach this place and find diamonds, they shall belong to you and good equally. I do not want them. But, of course, that promise is worth nothing at all, though the same thing would apply to any ivory we might get. You may pretty well make your own terms with me, Mr. Quartermain, and, of course, I shall pay all expenses. Sir Henry, said I, this is the most liberal proposal I have ever had, and not one to be sneezed at by a poor hunter and trader. But the job is the biggest I have come across and I must take time to think it over. I will give you my answer before we get to Durban. Very good, answered Sir Henry. Then I said good night and turned in, 
and dreamt about poor long-dead Silvestra and the diamonds. End of chapter 2 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 3 Umbopa Enters Our Service It takes from four to five days, according to the speed of the vessel and the state of the weather, to run up from the Cape to Durban. Sometimes, if the landing is bad at East London, where they have not yet made that wonderful harbor they talk so much of and sink such a mint of money in, a ship is delayed for 24 hours before the cargo boats can get out to take off the goods. But on this occasion we had not to wait at all, for there were no breakers on the bar to speak of, and the tugs came out at once with the long strings of ugly flat-bottom boats behind them, into which the packages were bundled with a crash. It did not matter what they might be, over they went, slap-bang, whether they contained china or woolen goods, they met with the same treatment. I saw one case holding four dozen of champagne smashed all to bits, and there was the champagne fizzing and boiling about in the bottom of the dirty cargo boat. It was a wicked waste, and evidently so the Kaffirs in the boat thought, for they found a couple of unbroken bottles, and knocking off the necks drank the contents. But they had not allowed for the expansion caused by the fizz and the wine, and feeling themselves swelling, rolled about in the bottom of the boat, calling out that the good liquor was Tokati, that was bewitched. I spoke to them from the vessel, and told them it was the white man's strongest medicine, and they were as good as dead men. Those Kaffirs went to shore in a very great fright, and I do not think they will touch champagne again. Well, all the time that we were steaming up to Natal, I was thinking over Sir Henry Curtis's offer. We did not speak any more on the subject for a day or two, though I told them many hunting yarns, all true ones. There is no need to tell lies about hunting, for so many curious things happen within the knowledge of a man whose business it is to hunt. But this is by the way. At last, one beautiful evening in January, which is our hottest month, we steamed past the coast of Natal, expecting to make Durban Point by sunset. It is a lovely coast all along from East London, with its red sand hills and wide sweeps of vivid green, dotted here and there with Kaffir kraals, and bordered by a ribbon of white surf, which sprouts up in pillars of foam where it hits the rocks. But just before you come to Durban, there is a peculiar richness about the landscape. There are the sheer kloofs cut in the hill by the rushing rains of centuries, down which the rivers sparkle. There is the deepest green of the bush, growing as God planted it, and the other greens of the mealy gardens and the sugar patches while now and again a white house, smiling out at the placid sea, puts a finish and gives an air of homeliness to the scene. 
for to my mind, however beautiful a view may be, it requires the presence of man to make it complete. But perhaps that is because I have lived so much in the wilderness, and therefore know the value of civilization. Though to be sure, it drives away the game. The Garden of Eden, no doubt, looked fair before man was, but I always think that it must have been fairer when Eve adorned it. To return, we had miscalculated a little, and the sun was well down before we dropped anchor off the point, and heard the gun which told the good folks of Durban that the English mail was in. It was too late to think of getting over the bar that night, so we went comfortably to dinner, after seeing the mails carried off in the lifeboat. When we came up again, the moon was out, and shining so brightly over sea and shore that she almost paled the quick, large flashes from the lighthouse. From the shore floated sweet, spicy odors that always remind me of hymns and missionaries, and in the windows of the houses on the Berea sparkled a hundred lights. From a large brig lying near also, came the music of the sailors as they worked at getting the anchor up in order to be ready for the wind. Altogether it was a perfect night, such a night as you sometimes get in southern Africa, and it threw a garment of peace over everybody, as the moon threw a garment of silver over everything. Even the great bulldog belonging to a sporting passenger seemed to yield to its gentle influence and forgetting his yearning to come to close quarters with the baboon in a cage on the forecastle, snored happily at the door of the cabin, dreaming, no doubt, that he had finished him, and happy in his dream. We three, that is, Sir Henry Curtis, Captain Good, and myself, went and sat by the wheel, and were quiet for a while. Well, Mr. Quatermain, said Sir Henry presently, have you been thinking about my proposals? I echoed Captain Good. What do you think of them, Mr. Quatermain? I hope that you are going to give us the pleasure of your company so far as Solomon's Mines or wherever the gentleman you knew as Neville may have got to. Yes, gentlemen, I said, sitting down again. I will go, and by your leave I will tell you why and on what conditions. First, for the terms which I ask. One, you are to pay all expenses, and any ivory or other valuables we may get is to divide it between Captain Good and myself. Two, that you give me five hundred pounds for my services on the trip before we start, I undertaking to serve you faithfully till you choose to abandon the enterprise or till we succeed or disaster overtakes us. Three, that before we trek you execute a deed agreeing, in the event of my death or disablement, to pay my boy Harry, who is studying medicine over there in London at Guy's Hospital, a sum of two hundred pounds a year for five years, by which time he ought to be able to earn a living for himself if he is worth his salt. That is all, I think, and I dare say you will quite say enough, too. No, answered Sir Henry, I accept them gladly, 
I am bent upon this project, and would pay more than that for your help, considering the peculiar and exclusive knowledge which you possess. Pity I did not ask it then, but I won't go back on my word. And now that I have got my terms, I will tell you my reasons for making up my mind to go. First of all, gentlemen, I have been observing you both for the last few days, and if you will not think me impertinent, I may say that I like you and believe that we shall come up well to the yoke together. That is something, let me tell you, when one has a long journey like this before one. And now, as to the journey itself, I tell you flatly, Sir Henry and Captain Good, that I do not think it probable we can come out of it alive, that is, if we attempt to cross the Suleiman Mountains. What was the fate of the old Dom da Silvestre three hundred years ago? What was the fate of his descendant twenty years ago? What has been your brother's fate? I tell you frankly, gentlemen, that as their fates were, so I believe ours will be. I paused to watch the effect of my words. Captain Good looked a little uncomfortable, but Sir Henry's face did not change. We must take our chance, he said. You may perhaps wonder, I went on, why, if I think this, I, who am, as I told you, a timid man, should undertake such a journey. It is for two reasons. First, I am a fatalist, and believe that my time is appointed to come quite without reference to my own movements and will, and that if I am to go to Suleiman's Mountains to be killed, I shall go there and shall be killed. God Almighty, no doubt, knows his mind about me, so I need not trouble on that point. Secondly, I am a poor man. For nearly forty years I have hunted and traded, but I have never made more than a living. Well, gentlemen, I don't know if you are aware that the average life of an elephant hunter, from the time he takes to the trade, is between four and five years. So you see, I have lived through about seven generations of my class, and I should think that my time cannot be far off anyway. Now, if anything were to happen to me in the ordinary course of business, by the time my debts are paid, there would be nothing left to support my son Harry whilst he was getting in the way of earning a living, whereas now he will be set up for five years. That is the whole affair in a nutshell. Mr. Quartermain, said Sir Henry, who had been giving me his most serious attention, your motives for undertaking an enterprise which you believe can only end in disaster reflect a great deal of credit on you. Whether or not you are right, of course, time and the event alone can show, but whether you are right or wrong, I may as well tell you at once that I am going through with it to the end, sweet or bitter. If we are to be knocked on the head, all I have to say is that I hope we get a little shooting first. Eh, good? Yes, yes, put in the captain. We have all three of us been accustomed to face danger and to hold our lives in our hands in various ways. So it is no good turning back now. And now I vote we go down to the saloon and take an observation just for luck, you know. And we did, through the bottom of a tumbler.
Next day we went ashore, and I put up Sir Henry and Captain Good at the little shanty I have built on the Berea, and which I call my home. There are only three rooms and a kitchen in it, and it is constructed of green brick with a galvanized iron roof. But there is a good garden with the best loquat trees in it that I know, and some nice young mangoes of which I hope great things. The curator of the botanical gardens gave them to me. It is looked after by an old hunter of mine named Jack, whose thigh was so badly broken by a buffalo cow in Sikuklunis country that he will never hunt again. But he can potter about and garden, being a Griqua by birth. You will never persuade a Zulu to take much interest in gardening. It is a peaceful art, and peaceful arts are not in his line. Sir Henry and Good slept in a tent pitched in my little grove of orange trees at the end of the garden, for there was no room for them in the house, and what with the smell of the bloom and the sight of the green and golden fruit, in Durban you will see all three on the tree together, I dare say it is a pleasant place enough, for we have few mosquitoes here on the Berea, unless there happens to come an unusually heavy rain. Well, to get on, for if I do not, Harry, you will be tired of my story before we ever fetch up at Suleiman's Mountains. Having once made up my mind to go, I set about making the necessary preparations. First, I secured the deed from Sir Henry, providing for you, my boy, in case of accidents. There was some difficulty about its legal execution, as Sir Henry was a stranger here and the property to be charged is over the water. But it was ultimately got over with the help of a lawyer, who charged twenty pounds for the job, a price that I thought outrageous. Then I pocketed my check for five hundred pounds. Having paid this tribute to my bump of caution, I purchased a wagon and a span of oxen on Sir Henry's behalf, and beauties they were. It was a twenty-two-foot wagon with iron axles, very strong, very light, and built throughout of stinkwood. Not quite a new one, having been to the diamond fields and back, but in my opinion all the better for that, for I could see that the wood was well seasoned. If anything is going to give in a wagon, or if there is green wood in it, it will show out on the first trip. This particular vehicle was what we call a half-tented wagon, that is to say, only covered in over the after twelve feet, leaving all the front part free for the necessaries we had to carry with us. In this after part were a hide cartel or bed, on which two people could sleep, also racks for rifles, and many other little conveniences. I gave a hundred and twenty-five pounds for it, and think that it was cheap at the price. Then I bought a beautiful team of twenty Zulu oxen, which I had kept my eye on for a year or two. Sixteen oxen is the usual number for a team, but I took four extra to allow for casualties. These Zulu cattle are small and light, not more than half the size of the Afrikander oxen, which are generally used for transport purposes but they will live where Afrikanders would starve, 
and with a moderate load can make five miles a day better going, being quicker and not so liable to become footsore. What is more, this lot were thoroughly salted, that is, they had worked all over South Africa, and so had become proof, comparatively speaking, against red water, which so frequently destroys whole teams of oxen when they get on to strange veldt or grass country. As for lung-sick, which is a dreadful form of pneumonia, very prevalent in this country, they had all been inoculated against it. This is done by cutting a slit in the tail of an ox and binding in a piece of the diseased lung of an animal which has died of the sickness. The result is that the ox sickens, takes the disease in a mild form, which causes its tail to drop off, as a rule about a foot from the root, and becomes proof against future attacks. It seems cruel to rob the animal of his tail, especially in a country where there are so many flies, but it is better to sacrifice the tail and keep the ox than to lose both tail and ox, for a tail without an ox is not much good except to dust with. Still, it does look odd to trek along behind twenty stumps where there ought to be tails. It seems as though nature made a trifling mistake and stuck the stern ornaments of a lot of prized bulldogs onto the rumps of the oxen. Next came the question of provisioning and medicines, one which required the most careful consideration. For what we had to do was to avoid lumbering the wagon, and yet to take everything absolutely necessary. Fortunately, it turned out that Good is a bit of a doctor, having at some point in his previous career managed to pass through a course of medical and surgical instruction, which he has more or less kept up. He is not, of course, qualified, but he knows more about it than many a man who can write M.D. after his name, as we found out afterwards. And he had a splendid traveling medicine chest and a set of instruments. While we at Durban, he cut off a Kaffir's big toe in a way which it was a pleasure to see. But he was quite nonplussed when the Kaffir, who had sat stolidly watching the operation, asked him to put on another, saying that a white one would do in a pinch. There remained when these questions were satisfactorily settled, two further important points for consideration, namely that of arms and that of servants. As to the arms, I cannot do better than put down a list of those which we finally decided on from among the ample store that Sir Henry had brought with him from England and those which I owned. I copy it from my pocketbook where I made the entry at the time. Three heavy breech-loading double-eight elephant guns, weighing about 15 pounds each, to carry a charge of 11 drams of black powder. Two of these were by a well-known London firm, most excellent makers, but I do not know by whom mine, which is not so highly finished, was made. I have used it on several trips and shot a good many elephants with it, 
and it has always proved a most superior weapon, thoroughly to be relied on. Three double 500 expresses, constructed to stand a charge of six drams, sweet weapons, and admirable for medium-sized games such as eland or sable antelope, are for men, especially in an open country and with the semi-hollow bullet. One double number 12 central firekeeper's shotgun, full choke, both barrels. This gun proved of the greatest service to afterwards in shooting game for the pot. Three Winchester repeating rifles, not carbines, spare guns. Three single-action Colt's revolvers with the heavier or American pattern of cartridge. This was our total armament, and doubtless the reader will observe that the weapons of each class were of the same make and caliber, so that the cartridges were interchangeable, a very important point. I make no apology for detailing it at length, as every experienced hunter will know how vital a proper supply of guns and ammunition is to the success of an expedition. Now, as to the men who were to go with us. After much consultation, we decided that their number should be limited to five, namely a driver, a leader, and three servants. The driver and leader I found without much difficulty, two Zulus, named respectively Goza and Tom. But to get the servants proved a more difficult matter. It was necessary that they should be thoroughly trustworthy and brave men, as in a business of this sort our lives might depend upon their conduct. At last I secured two, one a Hottentot named Ventvogel, or Windbird, and one a little Zulu named Kiva, who had the merit of speaking English perfectly. Ventvogel I had known before. He was one of the most perfect sporers, that is, game trackers, I ever had to do with, and tough as whipcord. He never seemed to tire. But he had one failing, so common in his race, drink. Put him within reach of a bottle of gin, and you could not trust him. However, as we were going beyond the region of grog shops, this little weakness of his did not so much matter. Having secured these two men, I looked in vain for a third to suit my purpose. So we determined to start without one, trusting to luck to find a suitable man on our way up country. But as it happened, on the evening before the day we had fixed for our departure, the Zulu Kiva informed me that a kefir was waiting to see me. Accordingly, when we had done dinner, for we were at the table at the time, I told Kiva to bring him in. Presently a tall, handsome-looking man, somewhere about thirty years of age, and very light-colored for a Zulu, entered, and lifting his knobstick by way of salute, squatted himself down in the corner on his haunches and sat silent. I did not take any notice of him for a while, for it is a great mistake to do so. If you rush into conversation at once, a Zulu is apt to think you are a person of little dignity or consequence. I observed, however, that he was a keshla, or ringed man. 
that is, he wore on his head the black ring made up of a species of gum polished with fat and worked up in the hair, which is usually assumed by Zulus on attaining a certain age or dignity. Also, it struck me that his face was familiar to me. Well, I said at last, what is your name? Umbopa, answered the man in a slow, deep voice. I have seen your face before. Yes, the Inkusi, the chief, my father, saw my face at the place of the little hand, that is, Isandwana, on the day before the battle. Then I remembered. I was one of Lord Chelmsford's guides in that unlucky Zulu war, and had the good fortune to leave the camp in charge of some wagons on the day before the battle. While I was waiting for the cattle to be inspanned, I fell into conversation with this man, who held some small command among the native auxiliaries, and he had expressed to me his doubts as to the safety of the camp. At the time I told him to hold his tongue and leave such matters to wiser heads, but afterwards I thought of his words. I remember, I said, what is it you want? It is this, Makumazan. That is my Kafir name, and means the man who gets up in the middle of the night, or, in vulgar English, he who keeps his eyes open. I hear that you go on a great expedition far into the north with the white chiefs from over the water. Is it a true word? It is. I hear that you go even to the Lukanga River, a moon's journey beyond the Manika country. Is this so also, Makumazan? Why do you ask whither we go? What is it to you? I answered suspiciously, for the objects of our journey had been kept a dead secret. It is this, O white man, that if indeed you travel so far, I would travel with you. There was a certain assumption of dignity in the man's mode of speech, and especially in his use of the words, O white men, instead of, O encosis, or chiefs, which struck me. You forget yourself a little, I said. Your words run out unawares. That is not the way to speak. What is your name, and where is your kraal? Tell us, that we may know with whom we have to deal. My name is Zumbopa. I am of the Zulu people, yet not of them. The house of my tribe is in the far north. It was left behind when the Zulus came down here a thousand years ago, long before Chaka reigned in Zululand. I have no kraal. I have wandered for many years. I came from the north as a child to Zululand. I was set the Wales man in the Nkuma Bakosi regiment, serving there under the great captain Umstopogasi of the Axe, who taught my hands to fight. Editor's Note For the history of Umstopogasi and his axe, the reader is referred to the books called Alan Quartermain and Nada the Lily. 
Afterwards, I ran away from Zululand and came to Natal because I wanted to see the white man's ways. Next, I fought against Setaweo in the war. Since then, I have been working in Natal. Now I am tired and would go north again. Here is not my place. I want no money, but I am a brave man and am worth my place and meat. I have spoken. I was rather puzzled by this man and his way of speech. It was evident to me from his manner that in the main he was telling the truth, but somehow he seemed different from the ordinary run of Zulus, and I rather mistrusted his offer to come without pay. Being in a difficulty, I translated his words to Sir Henry and Good and asked them their opinion. Sir Henry told me to ask him to stand up. Umbopa did so, at the same time slipping off the long military greatcoat which he wore, and revealing himself naked except for the muka around his center and a necklace of lion's claws. Certainly he was a magnificent-looking man. I never saw a finer native. Standing about six foot three high, he was broad in proportion, and very shapely. In that light, too, his skin looked scarcely more than dark, except here and there where deep black scars marked old Asagai wounds. Sir Henry walked up to him and looked into his proud, handsome face. They make a good pair, don't they, said Good. One as big as the other. I like your looks, Mr. Umbopa, and I will take you as my servant, said Sir Henry in English. Umbopa evidently understood him, for he answered in Zulu, It is well. And then he added, with a glance at the white man's great stature and breadth, We are men, thou and I. End of chapter 3 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 4 An Elephant Hunt now, I do not propose to narrate at full length all the incidents of our long travel up to Setanda's Corral, near the junction of the Lukanga and Kalukwe rivers. It was a journey of more than a thousand miles from Durban, the last three hundred or so of which we had to make on foot, owing to the frequent presence of the dreadful tsetse fly, whose bite is fatal to all animals except donkeys and men. We left Durban at the end of January, and it was in the second week of May that we camped near Setanda's Corral. Our adventures on the way were many and various, but as they are of the sort which befall every African hunter, with one exception to be presently detailed, I shall not set them down here, lest I should render this history too wearisome. At Inyati, the outlying trading station in the Matabele country, of which Lobengula 
a great and cruel scoundrel, is king. With many regrets we parted from our comfortable wagon. Only twelve oxen remained to us out of the beautiful span of twenty which I had bought at Durban. One we lost from the bite of a cobra, three had perished from poverty and the want of water, one strayed, and the other three died from eating the poisonous herb called tulip. Five more sickened from this cause, but we managed to cure them with doses of an infusion made by boiling down the tulip leaves. If administered in time, this is a very effective antidote. The wagon and the oxen we left in the immediate charge of Goza and Tom, our driver and leader, both trustworthy boys, requesting a worthy Scotch missionary who lived in this distant place to keep an eye on them. Then, accompanied by Umbopa, Kiva, Ventvogel, and half a dozen bearers whom we hired on the spot, we started off on foot upon our wild quest. I remember we were all a little silent on the occasion of this departure, and I think that each of us was wondering if we should ever see our wagon again. For my part, I never expected to do so. For a while we tramped on in silence, till Umbopa, who was marching in front, broke into a Zulu chant about how some brave men, tired of life and the tameness of things, started off into a vast wilderness to find new things or die, and how, lo and behold, when they had traveled far into the wilderness, they found that it was not a wilderness at all, but a beautiful place, full of young wives and fat cattle, of game to hunt and enemies to kill. Then we all laughed and took it for a good omen. Umbopa was a cheerful savage in a dignified sort of way, when he was not suffering from one of his fits of brooding, and he had a wonderful knack of keeping up our spirits. We all grew very fond of him. And now for the one adventure to which I am going to treat myself, for I do dearly love a hunting yarn. About a fortnight's march from Inyati, we came across a peculiarly beautiful bit of well-watered woodland country. The kloofs in the hills were covered with dense bush, idoro bush as the natives call it, and in some places with the little wachin becha, or wait-a-little-thorn and there were great quantities of the lovely machabel tree, laden with refreshing yellow fruit having enormous stones. This tree is the elephant's favorite food, and there were not wanting signs that the great brutes had been about, for not only was their spore frequent, but in many places the trees were broken down and even uprooted. The elephant is a destructive feeder. One evening... After a long day's march, we came to a spot of great loveliness. At the foot of a bush-clad hill lay a dry river-bed, in which, however, were to be found pools of crystal water all trodden round with the hoof-prints of game. Facing this hill was a park-like plain, which grew clumps of flat-topped mimosa, varied with occasional glossy-leaved machabels, and all round stretched the sea of pathless, silent bush. As we emerged into this riverbed path, 
suddenly we started a troop of tall giraffes who galloped, or rather sailed off, in their strange gait, their tails screwed up over their backs, and their hoofs rattling like castanets. They were about three hundred yards from us, and therefore practically out of shot, but Good, who was walking ahead, and who had an express loaded with solid ball in his hand, could not resist temptation. Lifting his gun, he let drive at the last a young cow. By some extraordinary chance, the ball struck it full on the back of the head, shattering the spinal column, and that giraffe went rolling head over heels just like a rabbit. I never saw a more curious thing. Curse it! said Good, for I am sorry to say he had a habit of using strong language when excited. Contracted, no doubt, in the course of his nautical career. Curse it, I've killed him. Oh, Bougouin, ejaculated the Kaffirs. Oh, oh. They called Good Bougouin, or Glass Eye, because of his glass eye. Oh, Bougouin, re-echoed Sir Henry and I, and from that day Good's reputation as a marvelous shot was established, at any rate among the Kaffirs. Really, he was a bad one, but whenever he missed, we overlooked it for the sake of that giraffe. Having set some of the boys to cut off the best of the giraffe's meat, we went to work to build a skirm near one of the pools and about a hundred yards to its right. This is done by cutting a quantity of thorn bushes and piling them in the shape of a circular hedge. Then the space enclosed is smoothed and dry tambuki grass, if obtainable, is made into a bed in the center, and a fire or fires lighted. By the time the skirm was finished, the moon peeped up, and our dinners of giraffe steaks and roasted marrow bones were ready. How we enjoyed those marrow bones, though it was rather a job to crack them. I know of no greater luxury than giraffe marrow, unless it is elephant's heart and we had that on the morrow. We ate our simple meal by the light of the moon, pausing at times to thank Good for his wonderful shot. Then we began to smoke and yarn. And a curious picture we must have made squatting there around the fire. I, with my short grizzled hair sticking up straight, and Sir Henry with his yellow locks, which were getting rather long, were rather a contrast especially as I am thin and short and dark, weighing only nine stone and a half, and Sir Henry is tall and broad and fair and weighs fifteen. But perhaps the most curious looking of the three, taking all the circumstances of the case into consideration, was Captain John Good, R.N. There he sat upon a leather bag, looking just as though he had come in from a comfortable day's shooting in a civilized country, absolutely clean, tidy, and well-dressed. He wore a shooting suit of brown tweed with a hat to match and neat gaiters. As usual, he was beautifully shaved. His eyeglass and his false teeth appeared to be in perfect order, and altogether he looked the neatest man I have ever had to do with in the wilderness. He even sported a collar, of which he had a supply, made of white gutta-percha. 
"'You see, they weigh so little,' he said to me innocently, when I expressed my astonishment at the fact. "'And I always like to turn out like a gentleman.' "'Ah, if he could have foreseen the future and the raiment prepared for him.' Well, there we three sat, yarning away in the beautiful moonlight, and watching the Kaffirs a few yards off, sucking their intoxicating daka from a pipe, of which the mouthpiece was made of the horn of an eland, till one by one they rolled themselves up in their blankets and went to sleep by the fire, that is, all except Umbopa, who was a little apart, his chin resting on his hand, and thinking deeply, I noticed that he never mixed much with the other Kaffirs. Presently, from the depths of the bush behind us, came a loud, Woof! Woof! That's a lion, said I, and we all started up to listen. Hardly had we done so, when from the pool, about a hundred yards off, we heard the strident trumpeting of an elephant. Ungunguglovo! Indlovo! Elephant! Elephant! whispered the Kaffirs and a few minutes afterwards we saw a succession of vast shadowy forms moving slowly from the direction of the water towards the bush. Up jumped Good, burning for slaughter, and thinking, perhaps, that it was as easy to kill Elephant as he had found it to shoot Giraffe, but I caught him by the arm and pulled him down. "'It's no good,' I whispered. "'Let them go.' "'It seems that we are in a paradise of game.' "'I vote we stop here for a day or two and have a go at them,' said Sir Henry presently. "'I was rather surprised, for hitherto Sir Henry had always been for pushing forward as fast as possible, "'more especially since we ascertained at Inyati that about two years ago an Englishman of the name of Neville "'had sold his wagon there and gone on up country, but I suppose his hunter instincts got the better of him for a while.' Good jumped at the idea, for he was longing to have a shot at those elephants. And so, to speak the truth, did I, for it went against my conscience to let such a herd as that escape without a pull at them. "'All right, my hearties,' said I. "'I think we want a little recreation. And now let's turn in, for we ought to be off by dawn, and then perhaps we may catch them feeding before they move on.' The others agreed, and we proceeded to make our preparations. Good took off his clothes, shook them, put his eyeglass and his false teeth into his trousers' pocket, and, folding each article neatly, placed it out of the dew under a corner of his Macintosh sheet. Sir Henry and I contented ourselves with rougher arrangements, and soon were curled up in our blankets and dropping off into the dreamless sleep that rewards the traveler. Going, going, go, what was that? Suddenly, from the direction of the water, came sounds of violent scuffling, and next instant there broke upon our ears a succession of the most awful roars. There was no mistaking their origin. Only a lion could make such a noise as that. We all jumped up and looked towards the water, in the direction of which we saw a confused mass yellow and black in color, staggering and struggling towards us. We seized our rifles, and slipping on our veldschoons, that is, shoes made of untanned hide, 
ran out of the skirm. By this time the mass had fallen, and was rolling over and over on the ground, and when we reached the spot it struggled no longer, but lay quite still. Now we saw what it was. On the grass there lay a sable antelope bull, the most beautiful of all the African antelopes, quite dead, and transfixed by its great curved horns was a magnificent black-maned lion, also dead. Evidently what had happened was this. The sable antelope had come down to drink at the pool where the lion, no doubt the same which we had heard, was lying in wait. While the antelope drank, the lion had sprung upon him, only to be received upon the sharp, curved horns and transfixed. Once before I saw a similar thing happen. Then the lion, unable to free himself, had torn and bitten at the back and neck of the bull, which, maddened with fear and pain, had rushed on until it dropped dead. As soon as we had examined the beast sufficiently, we called the Kaffirs, and between us managed to drag their carcasses up to the skirm. After that we went in and lay down, to wake no more till dawn. With the first light we were up and making ready for the fray. We took with us the three eight-bore rifles, a good supply of ammunition, and our large water bottles filled with weak cold tea, which I have always found the best stuff to shoot on. After swallowing a little breakfast we started, Umbopa, Kiva, and Ventvogel accompanying us. The other Kaffirs we left with instructions to skin the lion and the sable antelope and cut up the latter. We had no difficulty in finding the broad elephant trail which Ventvogel, after examination, pronounced to have been made by between twenty and thirty elephants, most of them full-grown bulls. But the herd had moved on some way during the night, and it was nine o'clock and already very hot before, by the broken trees, bruised leaves and bark, and smoking droppings, we knew that we could not be far from them. Presently we caught sight of the herd, which numbered, as Ventvogel had said, between twenty and thirty, standing in a great hollow, having finished their morning meal, and flapping their great ears. It was a splendid sight, for they were only about two hundred yards from us, Taking a handful of dry grass, I threw it into the air to see how the wind was. For if once they winded us, I knew they would be off before we could get a shot. Finding that, if anything, it blew from the elephants to us, we crept on stealthily, and thanks to the cover, managed to get within forty yards or so of the great brutes. Just in front of them, and broadside on, stood three splendid bulls one of them with enormous tusks. I whispered to the other that I would take the middle one, Sir Henry covering the elephant to the left, and Good, the bull with the big tusks. Now, I whispered, boom, 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 went the three heavy rifles, and down came Sir Henry's elephant dead as a hammer, shot right through the heart. Mine fell onto its knees, and I thought, that he was going to die, but in another moment he was up and off, tearing along straight past me, 
As he went, I gave him the second barrel in the ribs, and this brought him down in good earnest. Hastily slipping in two fresh cartridges, I ran close to him, and the ball through the brain put an end to the poor brute's struggles. Then I turned to see how good had fared with the big bull, which I had heard screaming with rage and pain as I gave mine its quietus. On reaching the captain, I found him in a great state of excitement. It appeared that on receiving the bullet, the bull had turned and come straight for his assailant, who had barely time to get out of his way, and then charged on blindly past him in the direction of our encampment. Meanwhile, the herd had crashed off in wild alarm in the other direction. For a while we debated whether to go after the wounded bull or to follow the herd, and finally deciding for the latter alternative departed, thinking that we had seen the last of those big tusks. I have often wished since that we had. It was easy work to follow the elephants, for they had left a trail like a carriage road behind them, crushing down the thick bush in their furious flight as though it were tambuki grass. But to come up with them was another matter, and we had struggled on under the broiling sun for over two hours before we found them. With the exception of one bull, they were standing together, and I could see from their unquiet way and the manner in which they kept lifting their trunks to test the air that they were on the lookout for mischief. The solitary bull stood fifty yards or so to this side of the herd, over which he was evidently keeping sentry, and about sixty yards from us. Thinking that he would see or wind us, and that it would probably start them off again if we tried to get nearer, especially as the ground was rather open, we all aimed at this bull, and at my whispered word we fired. The three shots took effect, and down he went dead. Again the herd started, but unfortunately for them, about a hundred yards further on was a nula, or dried-out water track, with steep banks, a place very much resembling the one where the Prince Imperial was killed in Zululand. Into this the elephants plunged, and when we reached the edge we found them struggling in wild confusion to get up the other bank, filling the air with their screams and trumpeting as they pushed one another aside in their selfish panic, just like so many human beings. Now was our opportunity, and firing away as quickly as we could load, we killed five of the poor beasts, and no doubt should have bagged the whole herd had they not suddenly given up their attempts to climb the bank and rushed headlong down the nullah. We were too tired to follow them, and perhaps also a little sick of slaughter, eight elephants being a pretty good bag for one day. So after we were rested a little, and the Kafirs had cut out the hearts of two of the dead elephants for supper, we started homewards, very well pleased with our day's work, having made up our minds to send the bearers on the morrow to chop away the tusks. Shortly after we repassed the spot where Good had wounded the patriarchal bull, we came across a herd of Eland, but did not shoot at them as we had plenty of meat. They trotted past us and then stopped behind a little patch of 
bush about a hundred yards away, wheeling round to look at us. As Good was anxious to get a near view of them, never having seen an eland close, he handed his rifle to Umbopa, and followed by Kiva, strolled up to the patch of bush. We sat down and waited for him, not sorry of the excuse for a little rest. The sun was just going down in its reddest glory, and Sir Henry and I were admiring the lovely scene, when suddenly we heard an elephant scream, and saw its huge and rushing form, with uplifted trunk and tail, silhouetted against the great fiery globe of the sun. Next second we saw something else, and that was Good and Kiva, tearing back towards us with the wounded bull, for it was he, charging after them. For a moment we did not dare to fire, though at that distance it would have been of little use if we had done so, for fear of hitting one of them. And the next a dreadful thing happened. Good fell, a victim to his passion for civilized dress. Had he consented to discard his trousers and gaiters like the rest of us, and to hunt in a flannel shirt and pair of velt shoons, it would have been all right. But as it was, his trousers cumbered him in that desperate race, and presently, when he was about sixty yards from us, his boot, polished by the dry grass, slipped, and down he went on his face right in front of the elephant. We gave a gasp, for we knew that he must die, and ran as hard as we could towards him. In three seconds it had ended, but not as we thought. Kiva, the Zulu boy, saw his master fall, and brave lad as he was, turned and flung his assegai straight into the elephant's face. It stuck in his trunk. With a scream of pain, the brute seized the poor Zulu, hurled him to the earth, and placing one huge foot onto his body about the middle, twined its trunk round his upper part, and tore him in two. We rushed up mad with horror, and fired again and again, till presently the elephant fell upon the fragments of the Zulu. As for good, he rose and wrung his hands over the brave man who had given his life to save him, and though I am an old hand, I felt a lump grow in my throat. Umbopa stood contemplating the huge dead elephant and the mangled remains of poor Kiva. Ah, well, he said presently, he's dead, but he died like a man. End of chapter 4 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 5 Our March into the Desert We had killed nine elephants, and it took us two days to cut out the tusks, and having brought them into camp, to bury them carefully in the sand under a large tree, which made a conspicuous mark for miles round. It was a wonderfully fine lot of ivory. I never saw a better, averaging as it did between forty and fifty pounds a tusk. The tusks of the great bull that killed poor Kiva 
scaled 170 pounds the pair, so nearly as we could judge. As for Kiva himself, we buried what remained of him in an ant-bear hole, together with an assegai to protect himself with on his journey to a better world. On the third day we marched again, hoping that we might live to return to dig up our buried ivory. And in due course, after a long and wearisome tramp and many adventures which I have not space to detail, we reached Santanda's Corral, near the Lukanga River, the real starting point of our expedition. Very well do I recollect our arrival at that place. To the right was a scattered native settlement, with a few stone cattle corrals, and some cultivated lands down by the water where these savages grew their scanty supply of grain. And beyond it stretched great tracts of waving veld covered with tall grass, over which herds of the smaller game were wandering. To the left lay the vast desert. This spot appears to be the outpost of the fertile country, and it would be difficult to say to what natural causes such an abrupt change in the character of the soil is due. But so it is. Just below our encampment flowed a little stream, on the farther side of which is a stony slope, the same down which, twenty years before, I had seen poor Silvestre creeping back after his attempt to reach Solomon's Mines, and beyond that slope begins the waterless desert, covered with a species of Karoo shrub. It was evening when we pitched our camp, and the great ball of the sun was sinking into the desert, sending glorious rays of many-colored light flying all over its vast expense. Leaving Good to superintend the arrangement of our little camp, I took Sir Henry with me, and walking to the top of the slope opposite, we gazed across the desert. The air was very clear, and far, far away I could distinguish the faint blue outlines, here and there capped with white, of the Suleiman Berg. There, I said, there is the wall round Solomon's Mines, but God knows if we shall ever climb it. My brother should be there, and if he is, I shall reach him somehow, said Sir Henry in that tone of quiet confidence which marked the man. I hope so, I answered, and turned to go back to the camp, when I saw that we were not alone. Behind us, also gazing earnestly towards the far-off mountain, stood the great Kafir Umbopa. The Zulu spoke when he saw that I had observed him, addressing Sir Henry, to whom he had attached himself. "'Is it to that land that thou wouldst journey, Inkubu?' "'A native word, meaning, I believe, an elephant, "'and the name given to Sir Henry by the Kafirs,' he said, "'pointing toward the mountain with his broad assegai. "'I asked him sharply what he meant by addressing his master in that familiar way. "'It is very well for natives to have a name for one among themselves.' but it is not decent that they should call a white man by their heathenish appellations to his face. The Zulu laughed a quiet little laugh which angered me. How dost thou know that I am not the equal of the Inkosi whom I serve, he said. He is of a royal house, no doubt, 
one can see it in his size and by his mien, so mayhap am I. At least I am as great a man. Be my mouth, O Makumazan, and say my words to the Inkus Inkubu, my master, for I would speak to him and to thee. I was angry with the man, for I am not accustomed to be talked to in that way by Kafirs, but somehow he impressed me, and besides I was curious to know what he had to say. So I translated, expressing my opinion at the same time that he was an impudent fellow, and that his swagger was outrageous. "'Yes, Umbopa,' answered Sir Henry, "'I would journey there. "'The desert is wide, and there is no water in it. "'The mountains are high and covered with snow, "'and man cannot say what lies beyond them, "'behind the place where the sun sets. "'How shalt thou come hither, Inkubu, "'and wherefore dost thou go?' "'I translated again. "'Tell him,' answered Sir Henry, that I go because I believe that a man of my blood, my brother, has gone there before me, and I journey to seek him. That is so, Inkubu. A Hottentot I met on the road told me that a white man went out into the desert two years ago towards those mountains with one servant, a hunter. They never came back. How do you know it was my brother? asked Sir Henry. Nay, I know not. But the Hottentot, when I asked what the white man was like, said that he had thine eyes and a black beard. He said, too, that the name of the hunter with him was Jim, that he was a Bekawana hunter and wore clothes. There is no doubt about it, said I. I knew Jim well. Sir Henry nodded. I was sure of it, he said. If George set his mind upon a thing, he generally did it. It was always so from his boyhood. If he meant to cross the Suleiman Berg, he has crossed it, unless some accident overtook him, and we must look for him on the other side. Umbopa understood English, though he rarely spoke it. It is a far journey, Unkabu, he put in, and I translated his remark. Yes, answered Sir Henry, it is far, but there is no journey upon this earth that a man may not make if he sets his heart to it. There is nothing, Umbopa, that he cannot do. There are no mountains he may not climb. There are no deserts he cannot cross, save a mountain and a desert of which you are spared the knowledge. If love leads him, and he holds his life in his hands, counting it as nothing, ready to keep it or lose it, as heaven above may order. I translated. Great words, my father, answered the Zulu. I always called him a Zulu, though he was not really one. Great swelling words fit to fill the mouth of a man. Thou art right, my father Inkabu. Listen, what is life? It is a feather. It is the seed of the grass, blown hither and thither, sometimes multiplying itself and dying in the act, sometimes carried away into the heavens. But if that seed be good and heavy, it may, perchance, travel a little way on the road it wills. It is well to try and journey one's road, and to fight with the air. Man must die. At the worst, he can but die a little sooner. I will go with thee across the desert and over the mountains, unless perchance I fall to the ground on the way, my father. He paused a while, 
and then went on with one of those strange bursts of rhetorical eloquence that Zulus sometimes indulge in, which to my mind, full though they are of vain repetitions, show that the race is by no means devoid of poetic instinct and of intellectual power. What is life? Tell me, O oh, white men who are wise, who know the secrets of the world, and of the world of stars, and the world that lies above and around the stars, who flash your words from afar without a voice. Tell me, white men, the secret of our life, whither it goes and whence it comes. You cannot answer me, you know not. Listen, I will answer. Out of the dark we came, into the dark we go. Like a storm-driven bird at night we fly out of the nowhere. For a moment our wings are seen in the light of the fire, and lo, we are gone again into the nowhere. Life is nothing, life is all. It is the hand with which we hold off death. It is the glow-worm that shines in the night-time and is black in the morning. It is the white breath of the oxen in winter. It is the little shadow that runs across the grass and loses itself at sunset. "'You are a strange man,' said Sir Henry, when he had ceased. Umbopa laughed. "'It seems to me that we are much alike, Inkubu. "'Perhaps I seek a brother over the mountains.' I looked at him suspiciously. "'What dost thou mean?' I asked. "'What dost thou know of those mountains?' "'A little, a very little. "'There is a strange land yonder, "'a land of witchcraft and beautiful things, "'a land of brave people, "'and of trees and streams and snowy peaks "'and of a great white road. "'I have heard of it. "'But what is the good of talking?' It grows dark. Those who live to see will see. Again I looked at him doubtfully. The man knew too much. You need not fear me, Makumazan, he said, interpreting my look. I dig no holes for you to fall in. I make no plots. If we ever cross these mountains behind the sun, I will tell what I know. But death sits upon them. Be wise and turn back. Go and hunt elephants, my masters. I have spoken. And without another word he lifted his spear in salutation and returned towards the camp where shortly afterwards we found him cleaning a gun like any other kafir. That is an odd man, said Sir Henry. Yes, I answered, too odd by half. I don't like his little ways. He knows something, and he will not speak out. But I suppose it is no use quarreling with him. We were in for a curious trip, and a mysterious Zulu won't make much difference one way or another. Next day we made our arrangements for starting. Of course, it was impossible to drag our heavy elephant rifles and other kit with us across the desert, so, dismissing our bearers, we made an arrangement with an old native who had a corral close by to take care of them till we returned. It went to my heart to leave such things as these sweet tools to the tender mercies of an old thief of a savage, whose greedy eyes I could see gloating over them, 
but I took some precautions. First of all, I loaded all the rifles, placing them at full cock, and informed him that if he touched them they would go off. He tried the experiment instantly with my eight-bore, and it did go off, and blew a hole right through one of his oxen, which were just then being driven up to the corral, to say nothing of knocking him head over heels with the recoil. He got up considerably startled, and not at all pleased at the loss of the ox, which he had the impudence to ask me to pay for, and nothing would induce him to touch the guns again. "'Put the live devils out of the way up there in the thatch,' he said, "'or they will murder us all.' "'Then I told him that when we came back, "'if one of those things was missing, "'I would kill him and his people by witchcraft, "'and if we died and he tried to steal the rifles, "'I would come and haunt him and turn his cattle mad "'and his milk sour till life was a weariness.' and he would make the devils in the guns come out and talk to him in a way he did not like, and generally gave him a good idea of judgment to come. After that he promised to look after them as though they were his father's spirit. He was a very superstitious old kafir and a great villain. Having thus disposed of our superfluous gear, we arranged the kit we five, Sir Henry, Good, myself, Umbopa, and the Hottentot Ventvogel, were to take with us on our journey. It was small enough, but do what we would, we could not get its weight down under about 40 pounds a man. This is what it consisted of. The three express rifles and 200 rounds of ammunition, the two Winchester repeating rifles for Umbopa and Ventvogel, with 200 rounds of cartridges, five Cochrane's water bottles, each holding four pints, five blankets, 25 pounds weight of biltong, i.e. sun-dried game flesh, 10 pounds weight of best mixed beads for gifts, a selection of medicine, including an ounce of quinine and one or two small surgical instruments, our knives, a few sundries such as a compass, matches, a pocket filter, tobacco, a trowel, a bottle of brandy, and the clothes we stood in. This was our total equipment, a small one indeed for such a venture, but we dared not attempt to carry more. Indeed, that load was a heavy one per man with which to travel across the burning desert, for in such places every additional ounce tells. But we could not see our way to reducing the weight, there was nothing taken but what was absolutely necessary. With great difficulty, and by the promise of a present of a good hunting knife each, I succeeded in persuading three wretched natives from the village to come with us for the first stage, twenty miles, and to carry a large round gourd holding a gallon of water apiece. My object was to enable us to refill our water bottles after the first night's march, for we determined to start in the cool of the evening. I gave out to these natives that we were going to shoot ostriches, with which the desert abounded. They jabbered and shrugged their shoulders, saying that we were mad and should perish of thirst, which I must say seemed probable. 
but being desirous of obtaining the knives, which were almost unknown treasures up there, they consented to come, having probably reflected that, after all, our subsequent extinction would be no affair of theirs. All next day we rested and slept, and at sunset ate a hearty meal of fresh beef washed down with tea. The last, as good remark sadly, we were likely to drink for many a long day. Then, having made our final preparations, we lay down and waited for the moon to rise. At last, about nine o'clock, up she came in all her glory, flooding the wild country with light, and throwing a silver sheen on the expanse of rolling desert before us, which looked as solemn and quiet and as alien to man as the star-studded firmament above. We rose up, and in a few minutes were ready, and yet we hesitated a little, as human nature is prone to hesitate on the threshold of an irrevocable step. We three white men stood by ourselves. Umbopa, guy in hand and a rifle across his shoulders, looked out fixedly across the desert a few paces ahead of us, while the hired natives, with the gourds of water and Ventvogel, were gathered in a little knot behind. "'Gentlemen,' said Sir Henry presently in his deep voice, "'we are going on about as strange a journey as men can make in this world. "'It is very doubtful if we can succeed in it. "'But we are three men who will stand together for good or for evil to the last. "'Now, before we start, let us for a moment pray to the power who shapes the destinies of men "'and who ages since has marked out our paths.' that it may please him to direct our steps in accordance with his will. Taking off his hat, for the space of a minute or so, he covered his face with his hands, and Good and I did likewise. I do not say that I am a first-rate praying man. Few hunters are. And as for Sir Henry, I never heard him speak like that before, and only once since though deep down in his heart I believe he is very religious. Good, too, is pious, though apt to swear. Anyhow, I do not remember, excepting on one single occasion, ever putting up a better prayer in my life than I did during that minute, and somehow I felt the happier for it. Our future was so completely unknown, and I think that the unknown and the awful always bring a man nearer to his Maker. And now, said Sir Henry, trek. So we started. We had nothing to guide ourselves by except the distant mountains and old José da Silvestre's chart, which, considering that it was drawn by a dying and half-distraught man on a fragment of linen three centuries ago, was not a very satisfactory sort of thing to work with. Still, our sole hope of success depended upon it, such as it was. If we failed in finding that pool of bad water which the old dom marked as being situated in the middle of the desert, about sixty miles from our starting point, and as far from the mountains, in all probability we must perish miserably of thirst. But to my mind the chances of our finding it in that great sea of sand and Karoo scrub seemed almost infinitesimal. Even supposing that Da Silvestra had marked the pool correctly, 
what was there to prevent its having been dried up by the sun generations ago, or trampled in by game, or filled in with the drifting sand? On we tramped, silently as shades, through the night and in the heavy sand. The karoo brushes caught our feet and retarded us, and the sand worked into our veltschuns and good shooting boots, so that every few miles we had to stop and empty them. But still the night kept fairly cool, though the atmosphere was thick and heavy, giving a sort of creamy feel to the air, and we made fair progress. It was very silent and lonely there in the desert, oppressively so indeed. Good felt this, and once began to whistle, The Girl I Left Behind Me, but the notes sounded lugubrious in that vast place, and he gave it up. Shortly afterwards, a little incident occurred which, though it startled us at the time, gave rise to a laugh. Good was leading as the holder of the compass, which, being a sailor, of course he understood thoroughly. And we were toiling along in single file behind him, when suddenly we heard the sound of an exclamation, and he vanished. Next second there arose all around us a most extraordinary hubbub, snorts, groans, and wild sounds of rushing feet. In the faint light, too, we could descry dim galloping forms half hidden by wreaths of sand. The natives threw down their loads and prepared to bolt, but remembering there was nowhere to run to, they cast themselves upon the ground and howled out that it was ghosts. As for Sir Henry and myself, we stood amazed, nor was our amazement lessened when we perceived the form of Good careening off in the direction of the mountains, apparently mounted on the back of a horse, and hallowing wildly. In another second he threw up his arms, and we heard him come to the earth with a thud. Then I saw what had happened. We had stumbled upon a herd of sleeping guaga, onto the back of one of which Good had actually fallen and the brute, naturally enough, got up and made off with him. Calling out to the others that it was all right, I ran towards Good, much afraid lest he should be hurt, but to my great relief I found him sitting in the sand, his eyeglass still fixed firmly in his eye, rather shaken and very much frightened, but not in any way injured. After this we traveled on without any further misadventure till about one o'clock when we called a halt and having drunk a little water, not much, for water was precious, and rested for half an hour, we started again. On, on we went, till at last the east began to blush like the cheek of a girl. Then there came faint rays of primrose light that changed presently to golden bars, through which the dawn glided out across the desert. The stars grew pale, and paler still, till at last they vanished. The golden moon waxed wan, and her mountain ridges stood out against her sickly face like the bones on the cheek of a dying man. Then came spear upon spear of light flashing far away across the boundless wilderness, piercing and firing the veils of mist, till the desert was draped in a tremulous golden glow, and it was day. Still we did not halt, though by this time we should have been glad enough to do so, for we knew that when once the sun was fully up it would be almost impossible for us to travel. 
At length, about an hour later, we spied a little pile of boulders rising out of the plain, and to this we dragged ourselves. As luck would have it, here we found an overhanging slab of rock, carpeted beneath with smooth sand, which afforded a most grateful shelter from the heat. Underneath this we crept, and each of us, having drunk some water and eaten a bit of biltong, we lay down and were soon sound asleep. It was three o'clock in the afternoon before we woke to find our bearers preparing to return. They had seen enough of the desert already, and no number of knives would have tempted them to come a step farther. So we took a hearty drink, and having emptied our water bottles, filled them up again from the gourds that they had brought with them, and then we watched them depart on their twenty miles tramp home. At half-past four we also started. It was lonely and desolate work, for with the exception of a few ostriches, there was not a single living creature to be seen on all the vast expanse of sandy plain. Evidently it was too dry for game, and with the exception of a deadly-looking cobra or two, we saw no reptiles. One insect, however, we found abundant, and that was the common or housefly. There they came, not as single spies, but in battalions, as I think the Old Testament says somewhere. Editor's Note Readers must beware of accepting Mr. Quartermain's references as accurate as it has been found some are prone to do. Although his reading evidently was limited, the impression produced by it upon his mind was mixed. Thus to him the Old Testament and Shakespeare were interchangeable authorities. Go where you will, you find him, and so it must have been always. I have seen him enclosed in amber, which is, I was told, quite half a million years old, looking exactly like his descendant of today. And I have little doubt but that when the last man lies dying on the earth, he will be buzzing around, if this event happens to occur in summer, watching for an opportunity to settle on his nose. At sunset we halted, waiting for the moon to rise. At last she came up, beautiful and serene as ever, and with one halt about two o'clock in the morning, we trudged on wearily through the night, till at last the welcome sun put a period to our labors. We drank a little, and flung ourselves down on the sand, thoroughly tired out, and soon were all asleep. There was no need to set a watch, for we had nothing to fear from anybody or anything in that vast, untenanted plain. Our only enemies were heat, thirst, and flies, but far rather would I have faced any danger from man or beast than that awful trinity. This time we were not so lucky as to find a sheltering rock to guard us from the glare of the sun, with the result that about seven o'clock we woke up experiencing the exact sensations one would attribute to a beefsteak on a gridiron. We were literally being baked through and through. The burning sun seemed to be sucking our very blood out of us. We sat up and gasped. said I, grabbing at the halo of flies which buzzed cheerfully round my head. The heat did not affect them. My word, said Sir Henry. It is hot, echoed Good. 
It was hot indeed, and there was not a bit of shelter to be found. Look where we would, there was no rock or tree, nothing but an unending glare, rendered dazzling by the heated air that danced over the surface of the desert as it dances over a red-hot stove. "'What is to be done?' asked Sir Henry. "'We can't stand this for long.' "'We looked at each other blankly. "'I have it,' said Good. "'We must dig a hole, get in it, "'and cover ourselves with the Karoo bushes.' "'It did not seem a very promising suggestion, "'but at least it was better than nothing, "'so we set to work. "'And with the trowel we had brought with us "'and the help of our hands,' In about an hour we had succeeded in delving out a patch of ground some ten feet long by twelve wide, to the depth of two feet. Then we cut a quantity of low scrub with our hunting knives, and creeping into the hole, pulled it over us all, with the exception of Ventvogel, on whom, being a hottentot, the heat had no particular effect. This gave us some slight shelter from the burning rays of the sun, but the atmosphere in that amateur grave can be better imagined than described. The black hole of Calcutta must have been a fool to it. Indeed, to this moment I do not know how we lived through the day. There we lay panting, and every now and again moistening our lips from our scanty supply of water. Had we followed our inclinations, we should have finished all we possessed in the first two hours but we were forced to exercise the most rigid care, for if our water failed us, we knew that very soon we must perish miserably. But everything has an end, if only you live long enough to see it, and somehow that miserable day wore on towards evening. About three o'clock in the afternoon we determined that we could bear it no longer, it would be better to die walking than to be killed slowly by heat and thirst in this dreadful hole. So taking each of us a little drink from our fast-diminishing supply of water, now warm to about the same temperature as a man's blood, we staggered forward. We had then covered some fifty miles of wilderness. If the reader will refer to the rough copy and translation of old da Silvestra's map, he will see that the desert is marked as measuring 40 leagues across, and the pan-bad water is set down as being about in the middle of it. Now 40 leagues is 120 miles, consequently we ought at the most to be within 12 or 15 miles of the water, if any should really exist. Through the afternoon we crept slowly and painfully along, "'scarcely doing more than a mile and a half in an hour. "'At sunset we rested again, waiting for the moon, "'and after drinking a little, managed to get some sleep. "'Before we lay down, Umbopa pointed out to us "'a slight and indistinct hillock on the flat surface of the plain, "'about eight miles away. "'At the distance it looked like an anthill, "'and as I was dropping off to sleep, I fell to wondering what it could be. With the moon we marched again, feeling dreadfully exhausted, and suffering tortures from thirst and prickly heat. Nobody who has not felt it can know what we went through. We walked no longer, we staggered. 
now and again falling from exhaustion, and being obliged to call a halt every hour or so. We had scarcely energy left in us to speak. Up to this Good had chatted and joked, for he is a merry fellow, but now he had not a joke in him. At last, about two o'clock, utterly worn out in body and mind, we came to the foot of the queer hill, or sand copy, which at first sight resembled a gigantic ant heap about a hundred feet high, and covering at the base nearly two acres of ground. Here we halted, and driven to it by our desperate thirst, sucked down our last drops of water. We had but half a pint ahead, and each of us could have drunk a gallon. Then we lay down. Just as I was dropping off to sleep, I heard Mbopa remark to himself in Zulu, "'If we cannot find water, we shall all be dead before the moon rises tomorrow.' I shuddered, hot as it was. The near prospect of such an awful death is not pleasant. But even the thought of it could not keep me from sleeping." End of chapter 5 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 6 Water, Water Two hours later, that is, about four o'clock, I woke up, for so soon as the first heavy demand of bodily fatigue had been satisfied, the torturing thirst from which I was suffering asserted itself. I could sleep no more. I had been dreaming that I was bathing in a running stream, with green banks and trees upon them, and I awoke to find myself in this arid wilderness, and to remember, as Umbopa had said, that if we did not find water this day we must perish miserably. No human creature could live long without water in that heat. I sat up and rubbed my grimy face with my dry and horny hands, as my lips and eyelids were stuck together, and it was only after some friction and with an effort that I was able to open them. It was not far from dawn, but there was none of the bright feel of dawn in the air, which was thick with a hot murkiness that I cannot describe. The others were still sleeping. Presently it began to grow light enough to read, so I drew out a little pocket copy of the Ingoldsby Legends, which I had brought with me, and read The Jackdaw of Reims. When I got to where... A nice little boy held a golden ewer, embossed and filled with water as pure as any that flows between Reims and Namur. Literally, I smacked my cracking lips, or rather tried to smack them. The mere thought of that pure water made me mad. If the cardinal had been there with his bell, book, and candle, I would have whipped in and drunk his water up. Yes, even if he had filled it already with the suds of soap, worthy of washing the hands of the Pope, and I knew that the whole consecrated curse of the Catholic Church should fall upon me for so doing. I almost think that I must have been a little light-headed with thirst, weariness, and the want of food, 
for I fell to thinking how astonished the cardinal and his nice little boy and the jackdaw would have looked to see a burnt-up, brown-eyed, grizzly-haired little elephant-hunter suddenly bound between them, put his dirty face into the basin and swallow every drop of the precious water. The idea amused me so much that I laughed, or rather cackled aloud, which woke the others, and they began to rub their dirty faces and drag their gummed-up lips and eyelids apart. As soon as we were all well awake, we began to discuss the situation, which was serious enough. Not a drop of water was left. We turned the bottles upside down and licked the tops, but it was a failure. They were dry as a bone. Good, who had charge of the flask of brandy, got it out and looked at it longingly. But Sir Henry promptly took it away from him, for to drink raw spirit would only have been to precipitate the end. "'If we do not find water, we shall die,' he said. "'If we can trust to the old Dom's map, there should be some about,' I said, "'but nobody seemed to derive much satisfaction from this remark. "'It was so evident that no great faith could be put in the map. "'Now it was gradually growing light, "'and as we sat staring blankly at each other, "'I observed the Hottentot Ventvogel rise,' and began to walk about with his eyes on the ground. Presently he stopped short, and, uttering a guttural exclamation, pointed to the earth. "'What is it?' we exclaimed, and, rising simultaneously, we went to where he was standing, staring at the sand. "'Well,' I said, "'it is fresh springbok spore. What of it?' "'Springboks do not go far from water,' he answered in Dutch." No, I answered, I forgot, and thank God for it. This little discovery put new life into us, for it is wonderful when a man is in a desperate position how he catches at the slightest hope and feels almost happy. On a dark night, a single star is better than nothing. Meanwhile, Ventvogel was lifting his snub nose and sniffing the hot air for all the world like an old Impala ram who scents danger. Presently he spoke again. I smell water, he said. Then we fell quite jubilant, for we knew what a wonderful instinct these wild-bred men possess. Just at that moment the sun came up gloriously, and revealed so grand a sight to our astonished eyes that for a moment or two we even forgot our thirst. There, not more than forty or fifty miles from us, glittering like silver in the early rays of the morning sun, soared Sheba's breasts, and stretching away for hundreds of miles on either side of them, ran the great Suleiman Berg. Now that sitting here I attempt to describe the extraordinary grandeur and beauty of that sight, language seems to fail me. I am impotent even before its memory. Straight before us rose two enormous mountains, the likes of which are not, I believe, to be seen in Africa, if indeed there are any other such in the world, measuring each of them at least 15,000 feet in height, standing not more than a dozen miles apart, linked together by a precipitous cliff of rock, and towering in awful white solemnity straight into the sky." 
These mountains placed thus, like the pillars of a gigantic gateway, are shaped after the fashion of a woman's breasts, and at times the mists and shadows beneath them take the form of a recumbent woman, veiled mysteriously in sleep. Their bases swell gently from the plain, looking at that distance perfectly round and smooth, and upon the top of each is a vast hillock covered with snow exactly corresponding to the nipple on the female breast. The stretch of cliff that connects them appears to be some thousands of feet in height, and perfectly precipitous, and on each flank of them, so far as the eye can reach, extend similar lines of cliff, broken only here and there by flat table-topped mountains, something like the world-famed one at Cape Town, a formation, by the way, that is very common in Africa. To describe the comprehensive grandeur of that view is beyond my powers. There was something so inexpressibly solemn and overpowering about those huge volcanoes, for doubtless they are extinct volcanoes, that it quite awed us. For a while the morning lights played upon the snow and the brown and swelling masses beneath, and then, as though to veil the majestic sight from our curious eyes, strange vapors and clouds gathered and increased around the mountains, till presently we could only trace their pure and gigantic outlines, showing ghost-like through the fleecy envelope. Indeed, as we afterwards discovered, usually they were wrapped in this gauze-like mist, which doubtless accounted for our not having seen them more clearly before. Sheba's breasts had scarcely vanished into cloud-clad privacy before our thirst, literally a burning question, reasserted itself. It was all very well for Ventvogel to say that he smelt water, but we could see no signs of it, look which way we would. So far as the eye might reach, there was nothing but arid, sweltering sand and Karoo scrub. We walked round the hillock, and gazed about anxiously on the other side, but it was the same story. Not a drop of water could be found. There was no indication of a pan, a pool, or a spring. You are a fool, I said angrily to Ventvogel. There is no water. But still he lifted his ugly snub nose, sniffed. I smell it, boss, he answered. It is somewhere in the air. Yes, I said, no doubt it is in the clouds, and about two months hence it will fall and wash our bones. Sir Henry stroked his yellow beard thoughtfully. Perhaps it is on the top of the hill, he suggested. Rot, said Good. Who ever heard of water being found at the top of a hill? Let us go and look, I put in and hopelessly enough we scrambled up the sandy sides of the hillock, Umbopa leading. Presently he stopped as though he was petrified. Nanzi Amanzi, that is, here is water, he cried with a loud voice. We rushed up to him, and there, sure enough, in a deep cut or indentation on the very top of the sand copy, was an undoubted pool of water. How it came to be in such a strange place we did not stop to inquire, nor did we hesitate at its black and unpleasant appearance. 
It was water or a good imitation of it, and that was enough for us. We gave a bound and a rush, and in another second we were all down on our stomachs, sucking up the uninviting fluid as though it were nectar fit for the gods. Heavens, how we did drink! Then, when we had done drinking, we tore off our clothes and sat in the pool, absorbing the moisture through our parched skins. You, Harry, my boy, who have only to turn a couple of taps to summon hot and cold from an unseen, vasty cistern, can have little idea of the luxury of that muddy wallow in brackish, tepid water. After a while we rose from it, refreshed indeed, and fell to on our biltong, of which we had scarcely been able to touch a mouthful for twenty-four hours, and ate our fill. Then we smoked a pipe, and lay down by the side of that blessed pool, under the overhanging shadow of its bank, and slept till noon. All that day we rested there by the water, thanking our stars that we had been lucky enough to find it, bad as it was, and not forgetting to render a due share of gratitude to the shade of the long-departed da Silvestra, who had set its position down so accurately on the tail of his shirt. The wonderful thing to us was that the pan should have lasted so long, and the only way in which I can account for this is on the supposition that it is fed by some spring deep down in the sand. Having filled both ourselves and our water bottles as full as possible, in far better spirits we started off again with the moon. That night we covered nearly five and twenty miles, but needless to say found no more water, though we were lucky enough the following day to get a little shade behind some ant heaps. When the sun rose and for a while cleared away the mysterious mists, Suleimansburg, with the two majestic breasts, now only about twenty miles off, seemed to be towering right above us, and looked grander than ever. At the approach of evening, we marched again, and to cut a long story short, by daylight next morning, found ourselves upon the lowest slopes of Sheba's left breast, for which we had been steadily steering. By this time our water was exhausted once more, and we were suffering severely from thirst, nor indeed could we see any chance of relieving it till we reached the snow line far, far above us. After resting an hour or two, driven to it by our torturing thirst, we went on, toiling painfully in the burning heat up the lava slopes, for we found that the huge base of the mountain was composed entirely of lava beds belched from the bowels of the earth in some far past age. By eleven o'clock we were utterly exhausted and generally speaking in a very bad state indeed. The lava clinker over which we must drag ourselves, though smooth compared with some clinker I have heard of, such as that on the island of Ascension, for instance, was yet rough enough to make our feet very sore, and this, together with our other miseries, had pretty well finished us. A few hundred yards above us were some large lumps of lava, and toward these we steered with the intention of lying down beneath their shade. We reached them, and to our surprise, so far as we had a capacity for surprise left in us, 
On a little plateau or ridge close by we saw that the clinker was covered with a dense green growth. Evidently soil formed of decomposed lava had rested there, and in due course had become the receptacle of seeds deposited by birds. But we did not take much further interest in that green growth, for one cannot live on grass like Nebuchadnezzar. That requires a special dispensation of providence and peculiar digestive organs. So we sat down under the rocks and groaned, and for one I wish heartily that we had never started on this fool's errand. As we were sitting there, I saw Umbopa get up and hobble towards the patch of green, and a few minutes afterwards, to my great astonishment, I perceived that usually very dignified individual dancing and shouting like a maniac and waving something green. Off we all scrambled towards him as fast as our wearied limbs would carry us, hoping that he had found water. "'What is it, Umbopa, son of a fool?' I shouted in Zulu. It is food and water, Macumazan, and again he waved the green thing. Then I saw what he had found. It was a melon. We had hit upon a patch of wild melons, thousands of them, and dead ripe. Melons, I yelled to Good, who was next to me, and in another minute his false teeth were fixed in one of them. I think we ate about six each before we had done, and and poor fruit as they were, I doubt if I ever thought anything nicer. But melons are not very nutritious, and when we had satisfied our thirst with their pulpy substance, and put a stock to cool by the simple process of cutting them in two, and setting them end on in the hot sun to grow cold by evaporation, we began to feel exceedingly hungry. We had still some biltong left, but our stomachs turned from biltong, and besides, we were obliged to be very sparing of it, for we could not say when we should find more food. Just at this moment, a lucky thing chanced. Looking across the desert, I saw a flock of about ten large birds flying straight towards us. Skit, boss, skit! Shoot, master, shoot, whispered the Hottentot, throwing himself on his face, an example which we all followed. Then I saw that the birds were a flock of pow, or bustards, and that they would pass within fifty yards of my head. Taking one of the repeating Winchesters, I waited till they were very nearly over us, and then jumped to my feet. On seeing me, the pow bunched up together, as I expected that they would, and I fired two shots straight into the thick of them. And as luck would have, it brought down one, a fine fellow that weighed about twenty pounds. In half an hour we had a fire made of dry melon stalks, and he was toasting over it, and we made such a feed as we had not tasted for a week. We ate that pow, nothing was left of him but his leg bones in his beak, and we felt not a little the better afterwards. That night we went on again with the moon, carrying as many melons as we could with us, as we ascended, we found the air grew cooler and cooler, which was a great relief to us, and at dawn, so far as we could judge, we were not more than about a dozen miles from the snow line. Here we discovered more melons, and so had no longer any anxiety about water, for we knew that we should soon get plenty of snow. But the ascent had now become very precipitous, and we made but slow progress, not more than a mile an hour. 
Also that night we ate our last morsel of biltong. As yet, with the exception of the pow, we had seen no living thing on the mountain, nor had we come across a single spring or stream of water, which struck us as very odd, considering the expanse of snow above us, which must, we thought, melt sometimes. But as we afterwards discovered, owing to a cause which is quite beyond my power to explain, all the streams flowed down upon the north side of the mountain. Now we began to grow very anxious about food. We had escaped death by thirst, but it seemed probable that it was only to die of hunger. The events of the next three miserable days are best described by copying the entries made at the time in my notebook. 21st May. Started 11 a.m., finding the atmosphere quite cold enough to travel by day and carrying some water melons with us, struggled on all day, but found no more melons, having evidently passed out of their district. Saw no game of any sort. Halted for the night at sundown, having had no food for many hours. Suffered much during the night from cold. 22nd. Started at sunrise again, feeling very faint and weak. Only made about five miles all day. Found some patches of snow of which we ate, but nothing else. Camped at night under the edge of a great plateau. Cold, bitter. Drank a little brandy each and huddled ourselves together, each wrapped up in his blanket, to keep ourselves alive. Are now suffering frightfully from starvation and weariness. Thought that Ventvogel would have died during the night. 23rd. Struggled forward once more as soon as the sun was well up and had thawed our limbs a little. We are now in a dreadful plight, and I fear that unless we get food, this will be our last day's journey. But little brandy left. Good Sir Henry and Umbopa bear up wonderfully, but Ventvogel is in a very bad way. Like most Hottentots, he cannot stand cold. Pangs of hunger not so bad, but have a sort of numb feeling about the stomach. Others say the same. We are now on a level with the precipitous chain or wall of lava, linking the two breasts, and the view is glorious. Behind us the glowing desert rolls away to the horizon, and before us lie mile upon mile of smooth hard snow, almost level, but swelling gently upwards, out of the center of which the nipple of the mountain, that appears to be some miles in circumference, rises about 4,000 feet into the sky. Not a living thing is to be seen. God help us, I fear that our time has come. And now I will drop the journal, partly because it is not very interesting reading. Also, what follows requires telling rather more fully. All that day, the 23rd May, we struggled slowly up the incline of snow, lying down from time to time to rest. A strange, gaunt crew we must have looked, while, laden as we were, we dragged our weary feet over the dazzling plain, glaring round us with hungry eyes. Not that there was much use in glaring, for we could see nothing to eat. We did not accomplish more than seven miles that day. Just before sunset, 
we found ourselves exactly under the nipple of Sheba's left breast, which towered thousands of feet into the air, a vast, smooth hillock of frozen snow. Weak as we were, we could not but appreciate the wonderful scene, made even more splendid by the flying rays of light from the setting sun, which here and there stained the snow blood-red and crowned the great dome above us with a diadem of glory. "'I say,' gasped Good presently, "'we ought to be somewhere near that cave the old gentleman wrote about.' "'Yes,' said I, "'if there is a cave.' "'Come, Quartermain,' groaned Sir Henry. "'Don't talk like that. "'I have every faith in the Dom. "'Remember the water. "'We shall find the place soon. "'If we don't find it before dark, we are dead men. "'That is all about it,' was my consolatory reply. "'For the next ten minutes we trudged in silence, "'when suddenly Umbopa, who was marching along beside me, "'wrapped in his blanket,' and with a leather belt strapped so tightly round his stomach to make his hunger small, as he said, that his waist looked like a girl's, caught me by the arm. Look, he said, pointing towards the springing slope of the nipple. I followed his glance, and some two hundred yards from us perceived what appeared to be a hole in the snow. It is the cave, said Umbopa. We made the best of our way to the spot, and found sure enough that the hole was the mouth of a cavern, no doubt the same as that of which da Silvestra wrote. We were not too soon, for just as we reached shelter the sun went down with startling rapidity, leaving the world nearly dark, for in these latitudes there is but little twilight. So we crept into the cave, which did not appear to be very big, and huddling ourselves together for warmth, swallowed what remained of our brandy, barely a mouthful each, and tried to forget our miseries in sleep. But the cold was too intense to allow us to do so, for I am convinced that at this great altitude the thermometer cannot have marked less than 14 or 15 degrees below freezing point. What such a temperature meant to us, enervated as we were by hardship, want of food, and the great heat of the desert, the reader may imagine better than I can describe. Suffice it to say that it was something as near death from exposure as I have ever felt. There we sat, hour after hour, through the still and bitter night, feeling the frost wander round and nip us now in the finger, now in the foot, now in the face. In vain we did huddle up closer and closer, there was no warmth in our miserable starved carcasses. Sometimes one of us would drop into an uneasy slumber for a few minutes, but we could not sleep much, and perhaps this was fortunate, for if we had, I doubt if we should have ever woke again. Indeed, I believe that it was only by force of will that we kept ourselves alive at all. Not very long before dawn I heard the Hottentot Ventvogel, whose teeth had been chattering all night like castanets, give a deep sigh. Then his teeth stopped chattering. I did not think anything of it at the time, concluding that he had gone to sleep. His back was resting against mine, and it seemed to grow colder and colder, till at last it felt like ice. At length the air began to grow gray with light, 
then golden arrows sped across the snow, and at last the glorious sun peeped above the lava wall and looked in upon our half-frozen forms. Also it looked upon Ventvogel, sitting there amongst us, stone dead. No wonder his back felt cold, poor fellow. He had died when I heard him sigh, and was now frozen almost stiff. Shocked beyond measure, we dragged ourselves from the corpse. How strange is that horror we mortals have of the companionship of a dead body, and left it sitting there, its arms clasped about its knees. By this time the sunlight was pouring its cold rays, for here they were cold, straight into the mouth of the cave. Suddenly I heard an exclamation of fear from someone and turned my head. And this is what I saw. Sitting at the end of the cavern, it was not more than twenty feet deep, was another form, of which the head rested on its chest and the long arms hung down. I stared at it and saw that this too was a dead man, and, what was more, a white man. The others saw also, and the sight proved too much for our shattered nerves. One and all we scrambled out of the cave as fast as our half-frozen limbs would carry us. End of chapter 6 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 7 Solomon's Road Outside the cavern we halted, feeling rather foolish. I am going back, said Sir Henry. Why? asked Good. Because it has struck me that what we saw may be my brother. This was a new idea, and we re-entered the place to put it to the proof. After the bright light outside, our eyes, weak as they were with staring at the snow, could not pierce the gloom of the cave for a while. Presently, however, they grew accustomed to the semi-darkness, and we advanced towards the dead man. Sir Henry knelt down and peered into his face. "'Thank God,' he said with a sigh of relief. "'It is not my brother.' Then I drew near and looked. The body was that of a tall man in middle life with aquiline features, grizzled hair, and a long black moustache. The skin was perfectly yellow and stretched tightly over the bones. Its clothing, with the exception of what seemed to be the remains of a woolen pair of hose, had been removed, leaving the skeleton-like frame naked. Round the neck of the corpse, which was frozen perfectly stiff, hung a yellow ivory crucifix. "'Who on earth can it be?' said I. "'Can't you guess?' asked Good. I shook my head. "'Why, the old Dom, José da Silvestra, of course. Who else?' "'Impossible!' I gasped. "'He died three hundred years ago. "'And what is there to prevent him from lasting for three thousand years in this atmosphere, I should like to know?' asked Good. 
If only the temperature is sufficiently low, flesh and blood will keep fresh as New Zealand mutton forever, and heaven knows it is cold enough here. The sun never gets in here. No animal comes here to tear or destroy. No doubt his slave, of whom he speaks on the writing, took off his clothes and left him. He could not have buried him alone. Look, he went on, stooping down to pick up a queerly shaped bone scraped at the end into a sharp point. Here is the cleft bone that Sylvestra used to draw the map with. We gazed for a moment, astonished, forgetting our own miseries in this extraordinary, and as it seemed to us, semi-miraculous sight. Aye, said Sir Henry, and this is where he got his ink from, and he pointed to a small wound on the dom's left arm. Did ever man see such a thing before? There was no longer any doubt about the matter which for my own part, I confess, perfectly appalled me. There he sat, the dead man, whose directions, written some ten generations ago, had led us to this spot. Here in my own hand was the rude pen with which he had written them, and about his neck hung the crucifix that his dying lips had kissed. Gazing at him, my imagination could reconstruct the last scene of the drama, the traveller dying of cold and starvation, yet striving to convey to the world the great secret which he had discovered, the awful loneliness of his death, of which the evidence sat before us. It even seemed to me that I could trace in his strongly marked features a likeness to those of my poor friend, Sylvestre, his descendant, who had died twenty years before in my arms, but perhaps that was fancy. At any rate, there he sat, a sad memento of the fate that so often overtakes those who would penetrate into the unknown. And there, doubtless, he will still sit, crowned with the dread majesty of death. For centuries yet unborn, to startle the eyes of wanderers like ourselves, if ever any such should come again to invade his loneliness. The thing overpowered us, already almost perished as we were with cold and hunger. Let us go, said Sir Henry in a low voice. Stay, we will give him a companion. And lifting up the dead body of the Hottentot Ventvogel, he placed it near to that of the old Dom. Then he stooped, and with a jerk broke the rotten string of the crucifix, which hung round Da Silvestre's neck, for his fingers were too cold to attempt to unfasten it. I believe that he has it still. I took the bone pen, and it is before me as I write. Sometimes I use it to sign my name. Then, leaving these two, the proud white man of a past age and the poor Hottentot, to keep their eternal vigil in the midst of the eternal snows, we crept out of the cave into the welcome sunshine and resumed our path, wondering in our hearts how many hours it would be before we were even as they are. When we had walked about half a mile, we came to the edge of the plateau, for the nipple of the mountain does not rise out of its exact center, though from the desert side it had seemed to do so. 
What lay below us we could not see, for the landscape was wreathed in billows of morning fog. Presently, however, the higher layers of mist cleared a little, and revealed, at the end of a large slope of snow, a patch of green grass some five hundred yards beneath us, through which a stream was running. Nor was this all. By the stream, basking in the bright sun, stood and lay a group of from ten to fifteen large antelopes. At that distance we could not see of what species. The sight filled us with unreasoning joy. If only we could get it, there was food in plenty. But the question was how to do so. The beasts were fully six hundred yards off, a very long shot, and one not to be depended on when our lives hung on the results. Rapidly we discussed the advisability of trying to stalk the game, but in the end dismissed it reluctantly. To begin with, the wind was not favorable, and further we must certainly be perceived, however careful we were, against the blinding background of snow which we should be obliged to traverse. "'Well, we must have a try from where we are,' said Sir Henry. "'Which shall it be, Quartermain, the repeating rifles or the expresses?' "'Here again was a question. "'The Winchester repeaters, of which we had two, "'Umbopa carrying poor Ventvogels as well as his own, "'were sighted up to a thousand yards, "'whereas the expresses were only sighted to three hundred and fifty beyond which shooting with them was more or less guesswork. On the other hand, if they did hit, the express bullets, being expanding, were much more likely to bring the game down. It was a knotty point, but I made up my mind that we must risk it and use the expresses. Let each of us take the buck opposite to him. Aim well at the point of the shoulder, and high up, said I, and Umbopa, do you give the word, so that we may all fire together. Then came a pause, each of us aiming his level best, as indeed a man is likely to do when he knows that life itself depends upon the shot. Fire, said Umbopa in Zulu, and at almost the same instant the three rifles rang out loudly. Three clouds of smoke hung for a moment before us, and a hundred echoes went flying over the silent snow. Presently the smoke cleared and revealed, oh joy, a great buck lying on its back and kicking furiously in its death agony. We gave a yell of triumph. We were saved. We should not starve. Weak as we were, we rushed down the intervening slope of snow, and in ten minutes from the time of shooting, that animal's heart and liver were lying before us. But now a new difficulty arose. We had no fuel, and therefore could make no fire to cook them. We gazed at each other in dismay. Starving men should not be fanciful, said Good. We must eat raw meat. There was no other way out of the dilemma, and our gnawing hunger made the proposition less distasteful than it would otherwise have been. So we took the heart and liver and buried them for a few minutes in a patch of snow to cool them. Then we washed them in the ice-cold water of the stream, and lastly ate them greedily. It sounds horrible enough, but honestly I never tasted anything so good as that raw meat. In a quarter of an hour we were changed men. 
our life and vigor came back to us, our feeble pulses grew strong again, and the blood went coursing through our veins. But mindful of the results of overfeeding on starved stomachs, we were careful not to eat too much, stopping whilst we were still hungry. "'Thank heavens,' said Sir Henry, "'that brute has saved our lives. "'What is it, Quartermain?' I rose and went to look at the antelope, for I was not certain. It was about the size of a donkey with large curved horns. I had never seen one like it before. The species was new to me. It was brown in color, with faint red stripes, and grew a thick coat. I afterwards discovered that the natives of that wonderful country call these bucks Inko. They are very rare and only found at a great altitude where no other game will live. This animal was fairly hit high up in the shoulder, though whose bullet brought it down we could not, of course, discover. I believe that Good, mindful of his marvelous shot at the giraffe, secretly set it down to his own prowess, and we did not contradict him. We had been so busy satisfying our hunger that hitherto we had not found time to look about us. But now, having set Umbopa to cut off as much of the best meat as we were likely to be able to carry, we began to inspect our surroundings. The mist had cleared away, for it was eight o'clock, and the sun had sucked it up. So we were able to take in all the country before us at a glance. I know not how to describe the glorious panorama which unfolded itself to our gaze. I have never seen anything like it before, nor shall, I suppose, again. Behind and over us towered Sheba's snowy breasts, and below, some five thousand feet beneath where we stood, lay league on league of the most lovely Champagne country. Here were dense patches of lofty forest. There a great river wound its silvery way. To the left stretched a vast expanse of rich, undulating veld or grassland, whereon we could just make out countless herds of game or cattle. At that distance we could not tell which. This expanse appeared to be ringed in by a wall of distant mountains. To the right the country was more or less mountainous, that is, solitary hills stood up from its level, with stretches of cultivated land between, amongst which we could see groups of dome-shaped huts. The landscape lay before us as a map, wherein rivers flashed like silver snakes, and alp-like peaks, crowned with wildly twisted snow wreaths, rose in grandeur, whilst over all was the glad sunlight and the breath of nature's happy life. Two curious things struck us as we gazed. First, that the country before us must lie at least 3,000 feet higher than the desert we had crossed, and secondly, that all the rivers flowed from south to north. As we had painful reason to know, there was no water upon the southern side of the vast range on which we stood, but on the northern face were many streams, most of which appeared to unite with the great river we could see winding away farther than our eyes could follow. We sat down for a while and gazed in silence at this wonderful view. Presently Sir Henry spoke. 
"'Isn't there something on the map about Solomon's great road?' he said. I nodded, for I was still gazing out over the far country. "'Well, look, there it is,' and he pointed a little to our right. Good and I looked accordingly, and there, winding away towards the plain, was what appeared to be a wide turnpike road. We had not seen it at first, because, on reaching the plain, it turned behind some broken country. We did not say anything, at least not much. We were beginning to lose the sense of wonder. Somehow it did not seem particularly unnatural that we should find a sort of Roman road in this strange land. We accepted the fact, that was all. Well, said Good, must be quite near us if we cut off the, to the right. Hadn't we better be making a start? This was sound advice, and so soon as we had washed our faces and hands in the stream, we acted on it. For a mile or more we made our way over boulders and across patches of snow, till suddenly, on reaching the top of the little rise, we found the road at our feet. It was a splendid road, cut out of the solid rock, at least fifty feet wide, and apparently well kept, though the odd thing was that it seemed to begin there. We walked down and stood on it, but one single hundred paces behind us, in the direction of Sheba's breasts, it vanished, the entire surface of the mountain being strewn with boulders interspaced with patches of snow. "'What do you make of this, Quartermain?' asked Sir Henry. I shook my head. I could make nothing of the thing. "'I have it,' said Good. "'The road, no doubt, ran right over the range and across the desert on the other side. "'But the sand there has covered it up, "'and above us it has been obliterated by some volcanic eruption of molten lava.' "'This seemed a good suggestion. "'At any rate, we accepted it and proceeded down the mountain.' It proved a very different business traveling along downhill on that magnificent pathway with full stomachs from what it was traveling uphill over the snow quite starved and almost frozen. Indeed, had it not been for melancholy recollections of poor Ventvogel's sad fate and of that grim cave where he kept company with the old Dom, we should have felt positively cheerful notwithstanding the sense of unknown dangers before us. Every mile we walked, the atmosphere grew softer and balmier, and the country before us shone with a yet more luminous beauty. As for the road itself, I never saw such an engineering work, though Sir Henry said that the great road over the St. Gothard in Switzerland is very similar. No difficulty had been too great for the old-world engineer who laid it out. At one place we came to a ravine three hundred feet broad and at least a hundred feet deep. This vast gulf was actually filled in with huge blocks of dressed stone, having arches pierced through them at the bottom for a waterway, over which the road went on sublimely. At another place it was cut in zigzags out of the side of a precipice five hundred feet deep, and in a third it tunneled through the base of an intervening ridge, a space of thirty yards or more. 
Here we noticed that the sides of the tunnel were covered with quaint sculptures, mostly of mailed figures driving in chariots. One, which was exceedingly beautiful, represented a whole battle scene with a convoy of captives being marched off in the distance. Well, said Sir Henry, after inspecting this ancient work of art, it is very well to call this Solomon's Road, but my humble opinion is that the Egyptians had been here before Solomon's people ever set a foot on it. If this isn't Egyptian or Phoenician handiwork, I must say that it is very like it. By midday we had advanced sufficiently down the mountain to search the region where wood was to be met with. First we came to scattered bushes, which grew more and more frequent, till at last we found the road winding through a vast grove of silver trees similar to those which are to be seen on the slopes of Table Mountain at Cape Town. I had never before met with them in all my wanderings, except at the Cape, and their appearance here astonished me greatly. Ah, said Good, surveying these shining-leaved trees with evident enthusiasm, here is lots of wood. Let us stop and cook some dinner. I have about digested that raw heart. Nobody objected to this. So leaving the road, we made our way to a stream which was babbling away not far off, and soon had a goodly fire of dry boughs blazing. Cutting off some substantial hunks from the flesh of the inco which we had brought with us, we proceeded to toast them on the end of sharp sticks as one sees the Kaffirs do, and ate them with relish. After filling ourselves, we lit our pipes and gave ourselves up to enjoyment that, compared with the hardships we had recently undergone, seemed almost heavenly. The brook, of which the banks were clothed with dense masses of a gigantic species of maidenhair fern, interspersed with feathery tufts of wild asparagus, sung merrily at our side. The soft air murmured through the leaves of the silver trees, doves cooed around, and bright-winged birds flashed like living gems from bough to bough. It was a paradise. The magic of the place, combined with an overwhelming sense of dangers left behind, and of the promised land reached at last, seemed to charm us into silence. Sir Henry and Umbopa sat conversing in a mixture of broken English and kitchen Zulu in a low voice, but earnestly enough, and I lay with my eyes half shut upon that fragrant bed of fern and watched them. Presently I missed good, and I looked to see what had become of him. Soon I observed him sitting by the bank of the stream in which he had been bathing. He had nothing on but his flannel shirt, and his natural habits of extreme neatness having reasserted themselves, he was actively employed in making a most elaborate toilet. He had washed his gutta-percha collar, had thoroughly shaken out his trousers, coat and waistcoat, and was now folding them up neatly till he was ready to put them on, shaking his head sadly as he scanned the numerous rents and tears in them, which naturally had resulted from our frightful journey. Then he took his boots, scrubbed them with a handful of fern, and finally rubbed them over with a piece of fat, which he had carefully saved from the inco meat, 
till they looked, comparatively speaking, respectable. Having inspected them judiciously through his eyeglass, he put the boots on and began a fresh operation. From a little bag that he carried, he produced a pocket comb in which was fixed a tiny looking-glass, and in this he surveyed himself. Apparently he was not satisfied, for he proceeded to do his hair with great care. Then came a pause while he again contemplated the effect. Still it was not satisfactory. He felt his chin, on which the accumulated scrub of a ten-day's beard was flourishing. Surely, thought I, he is not going to try to shave. But so it was. Taking the piece of fat with which he had greased his boots, Good washed it thoroughly in the stream. Then, diving again into the bag, he brought out a little pocket razor with a guard to it, such as are bought by people who are afraid of cutting themselves, or by those about to undertake a sea voyage. Then he rubbed his face and chin vigorously with the fat and began. Evidently it proved a painful process, for he groaned very much over it, and I was convulsed with inward laughter as I watched him struggling with that stubbly beard. It seems so very odd that a man should take the trouble to shave himself with a piece of fat in such a place and in our circumstances. At last he succeeded in getting the hair off the right side of his face and chin, when suddenly I, who was watching, became conscious of a flash of light that passed just by his head. Good sprang up with a profane exclamation. If it had not been a safety razor, he would certainly have cut his throat. And so did I, without the exclamation. And this was what I saw. Standing not more than twenty paces from where I was, and ten from Good, were a group of men. They were very tall and copper-colored, and some of them wore great plumes of black feathers and short cloaks of leopard skins. This was all I noticed at the moment. In front of them stood a youth of about seventeen, his hand still raised and his body bent forward in the attitude of a Grecian statue of a spear-thrower. Evidently the flash of light had been caused by a weapon which he had hurled. As I looked, an old soldier-like man stepped forward out of the group, and catching the youth by the arm said something to him. Then they advanced upon us. Sir Henry, Good, and Umbopa by this time had seized their rifles and lifted them threateningly. The party of natives still came on. It struck me that they could not know what rifles were, or they would not have treated them with such contempt. "'Put down your guns!' I hallowed to the others, seeing that our only chance of safety lay in conciliation. They obeyed and walking to the front I addressed the elderly man who had checked the youth. "'Greetings,' I said in Zulu, not knowing what language to use. To my surprise I was understood. "'Greeting,' answered the old man, not indeed in the same tongue, but in a dialect so closely allied to it that neither Umbopa nor myself had any difficulty in understanding him. Indeed, as we afterwards found out, the language spoken by this people is an old-fashioned form of the Zulu tongue, bearing about the same relationship to it that the English of Chaucer does to the English of the 19th century. Whence come you, he went on, who are you, and why are the faces of three of you white, 
and the face of the fourth as the face of our mother's sons. And he pointed to Umbopa. I looked at Umbopa as he said it, and it flashed across me that he was right. The face of Umbopa was like the faces of the men before me, and so was his great form like their forms. But I had not time to reflect on this coincidence. We are strangers and come in peace, I answered, speaking very slowly, so that he might understand me. And this man is our servant. You lie, he answered. No strangers can cross the mountains where all things perish. But what do your lies matter? If ye are strangers, then ye must die, for no strangers may live in the land of the Cucuanas. It is the king's law. Prepare then to die, O strangers. I was slightly staggered at this, more especially as I saw the hands of some of the men steal down to their sides, where hung on each what looked to me like a large and heavy knife. "'What does the beggar say?' asked Good. "'He says we are going to be killed,' I answered grimly. "'Oh, Lord!' groaned Good. And, as was his way, when perplexed, he put his hand to his false teeth, dragging the top set down and allowing them to fly back to his jaw with a snap. It was a most fortunate move, for next second the dignified crowd of Cucuanas uttered a simultaneous yell of horror and bolted back some yards. "'What's up?' said I. "'It's his teeth,' whispered Sir Henry excitedly. "'He moved them. "'Take them out, good. Take them out.' He obeyed, slipping the set into the sleeve of his flannel shirt. In another second, curiosity had overcome fear, and the men advanced slowly. Apparently they had now forgotten their amiable intention of killing us. "'How is it, O oh strangers?' asked the old man solemnly. "'That this fat man,' pointing to Good, who was clad in nothing but boots and a flannel shirt, and had only half finished his shaving, "'whose body is clothed and whose legs are bare,' who grows hair on one side of his sickly face and not on the other, and who wears one shining and transparent eye. How is it, I ask, that he has teeth which move of themselves, coming away from the jaws and returning of their own will? Open your mouth, I said to Good, who promptly curled up his lips and grinned at the old gentleman like an angry dog, revealing to his astonished gaze two thin red lines of gum as utterly innocent of ivories as a newborn elephant. The audience gasped. "'Where are his teeth?' they shouted. "'With our eyes we saw them.' Turning his head slowly and with a gesture of ineffable contempt, Good swept his hand across his mouth. Then he grinned again, and lo, there were two rows of lovely teeth. Now the young man who had flung the knife threw himself down on the grass and gave vent to a prolonged howl of terror, and as for the old gentleman, his knees knocked together with fear. "'I see that ye are spirits,' he said falteringly. "'Did ever man born of woman have hair on one side of his face and not on the other, or a round and transparent eye, or teeth which moved and melted away and grew again?' Pardon us, O oh my lords. Here was luck indeed, and needless to say, I jumped at the chance. It is granted, 
I said with an imperial smile. Nay, ye shall know the truth. We come from another world, though we are men such as ye. We come, I went on, from the biggest star that shines at night. Oh, oh, groaned the chorus of astonished aborigines. Yes, I went on, we do indeed. And again I smiled benignly as I uttered that amazing lie. We come to stay with you a little while, and to bless you by our sojourn. Ye will see, O oh friends, that I have prepared myself for this visit by the learning of your language. It is so, it is so, said the chorus. Only, my lord, put in the old gentleman, thou hast learned it very badly. I cast an indignant glance at him, and he quailed. Now, friends, I continued, ye might think that after so long a journey we should find it in our hearts to avenge such a reception. Mayhap to strike cold in death the imperious hand that, that in short threw a knife at the head of him whose teeth come and go. Spare him, my lords, said the old man in supplication. He is the king's son, and I am his uncle. If anything befalls him, his blood will be required at my hands. "'Yes, that is certainly so,' put in the young man with great emphasis. "'Ye may perhaps doubt our power to avenge,' I went on, heedless of this by-play. "'Stay, I will show you. "'Here, thou dog and slave,' addressing Umbopa in a savage tone, "'give me the magic tube that speaks,' and I tipped a wink towards my express rifle." Umbopa rose to the occasion, and with something as nearly resembling a grin as I have ever seen on his dignified face, he handed me the gun. It is here, O Lord of Lords, he said, with a deep obeisance. Now, just before I had asked for the rifle, I had perceived a little Clipspringer antelope standing on a mass of rock about seventy yards away, and determined to risk the shot. You see that buck? I said, pointing the animal out to the party before me. Tell me, is it possible for man born of woman to kill it from here with a noise? It is not possible, my lord, answered the old man. Yet shall I kill it, I said quietly. The old man smiled. That my lord cannot do, he answered. I raised the rifle and covered the buck. It was a small animal, and one which a man might well be excused for missing, but I knew that it would not do to miss. I drew a deep breath and slowly pressed on the trigger. The buck stood still as a stone. Bang! Thud! The antelope sprang into the air and fell on the rock dead as a doornail. A groan of simultaneous terror burst from the group before us. "'If you want meat,' I remarked coolly, "'go fetch that buck.' The old man made a sign, and one of his followers departed, and presently returned, bearing the clipspringer. I noticed with satisfaction that I had hit it fairly behind the shoulder. They gathered round the poor creature's body, gazing at the bullet hole in consternation." Ye see, I said, I do not speak empty words. There was no answer. 
"'If ye yet doubt our power,' I went on, "'let one of you go and stand upon that rock "'that I may make him as this buck.' "'None of them seemed at all inclined to take the hint, "'till at last the king's son spoke. "'It is well said. "'Do thou, my uncle, go stand upon the rock. "'It is but a buck that the magic has killed. "'Surely it cannot kill a man.' The old gentleman did not take the suggestion in good part. Indeed, he seemed hurt. No, no, he ejaculated hastily. My old eyes have seen enough. These are wizards indeed. Let us bring them to the king. Yet if any should wish a further proof, let him stand upon the rock, that the magic tube may speak with him. There was a most general and hasty expression of dissent. "'Let not good magic be wasted on our poor bodies,' said one. "'We are satisfied. "'All the witchcraft of our people cannot show the like of this.' "'It is so,' remarked the old gentleman, in a tone of intense relief. "'Without any doubt, it is so. "'Listen, children of the stars, "'children of the shining eye and the movable teeth, "'who roar out in thunder and slay from afar. "'I am Infadus, son of Kaffa.' once king of the Kukuana people. This youth is Scraga. He nearly scragged me, murmured Good. Scraga, son of Twala, the great king. Twala, husband of a thousand wives, chief and lord paramount of the Kukuanas, keeper of the great road, terror of his enemies, student of the black arts, leader of a hundred thousand warriors. Twala, the one-eyed, the black, the terrible. So, said I superciliously, lead us then to Twala. We do not talk with low people and underlings. It is well, my lords, we will lead you, but the way is long. We are hunting three days' journey from the place of the king. But let my lords have patience, and we will lead them. So be it, I said carelessly. All time is before us, for we do not die. We are ready. Lead on. But in Fadus and thou, Scraga, beware. Play no monkey tricks. Set for us no fox's snares. For before your brains of mud have thought of them, we shall know and avenge. The light of the transparent eye of him with the bare legs and the half-haired face shall destroy you and go through your land. His vanishing teeth shall affix themselves fast in you and eat you up, you and your wives and children. The magic tubes shall argue with you loudly and make you as sieves. Beware. This magnificent address did not fail of its effects. Indeed, it might almost have been spared, so deeply were our friends already impressed with our powers. The old man made a deep obeisance, and murmured the words, Kum, Kum, which I afterwards discovered was their royal salute, corresponding to the Baete of the Zulus, and turning addressed his followers. These at once proceeded to lay hold of all our goods and chattels in order to bear them for us, excepting only the guns, which they would on no account touch. They even seized goods' clothes, that, as the reader may remember, were neatly folded up beside him. 
he saw and made a dive for them, and a loud altercation ensued. "'Let not my lord of the transparent eye and the melting teeth touch them,' said the old man. "'Surely his slave shall carry the things.' "'But I want to put em on,' roared Good in nervous English. Umbopa translated. "'Nay, my lord,' answered Infadus. "'Would my lord cover up his beautiful white legs? "'Although he is so dark, Good has a singularly white skin. "'From the eye of his servants, "'have we offended my lord that he should do such a thing?' "'Here I nearly exploded with laughing.' "'and meanwhile one of the men started on with the garments. "'Damn it!' roared Good. "'That black villain has got my trousers!' "'Look here, Good,' said Sir Henry. "'You have appeared in this country in a certain character, "'and you must live up to it. "'It will never do for you to put on trousers again. "'Henceforth you must exist in a flannel shirt, "'a pair of boots, and an eyeglass.' Yes, I said, and with whiskers on one side of your face and not on the other. If you change any of these things, the people will think that we are impostors. I am very sorry for you, but seriously, you must. If once they begin to suspect us, our lives will not be worth a brass farthing. Do you really think so? said Good gloomily. I do indeed. "'Your beautiful white legs and your eyeglass are now the features of our party, "'and as Sir Henry says, you must live up to them. "'Be thankful that you've got your boots on and that the air is warm.' "'Good sighed and said no more, "'but it took him a fortnight to become accustomed to his new and scant attire.' "'End of chapter 7 "'This is a LibriVox recording.' All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by L. Ryder Haggard Chapter 8 We Enter Kukuana Land All that afternoon we traveled along the magnificent roadway, which trended steadily in the northwesterly direction. Infadus and Skraga walked with us, but their followers marched about one hundred paces ahead. Infadus, I said at length, who made this road? It was made, my lord, of old time, none know how or when, not even the wise woman Gagul, who has lived for generations. We are not old enough to remember its making. None can fashion such roads now, but the king suffers no grass to grow upon it. And whose are the writings on the wall of the caves through which we have passed on the road, I asked, referring to the Egyptian-like sculptures that we had seen. My lord, the hands that made the road wrote the wonderful writings. We know not who wrote them. When did the Kukuana people come into this country? My lord, the race came down here like the breath of a storm ten thousand thousand moons ago, from the great lands which lie there beyond, and he pointed to the north. They could travel no further because of the high mountains which ring in the land. 
so say the old voices of our fathers that have descended to us the children, and so says Gagool the wise woman, the smeller out of witches. And again he pointed to the snow-clad peaks. The country, too, was good, so they settled here, and grew strong and powerful, and now our numbers are like the sea-sand. And when Twala, the king, calls up his regiments, their plumes cover the plain so far as the eye of man can reach. And if the land is walled in with mountains, who is there for the regiments to fight with? Nay, my lord, the country is open there towards the north and now and again warriors sweep down upon us in clouds from a land we know not, and we slay them. It is the third part of the life of a man since there was a war. Many thousands died in it, but we destroyed those who came to eat us up. So since then there has been no war. Your warriors must grow weary of resting on their spears in Vadus. My lord, there was one war just after we destroyed the people that came down upon us. But it was a civil war. Dog ate dog. How was that? My lord the king, my half-brother, had a brother born at the same birth and of the same woman. It is not our custom, my lord, to suffer twins to live. The weaker always must die. But the mother of the king hid away the feeble child, which was born the last, for her heart yearned over it, and that child is Twala, the king. I am his younger brother, born of another wife. Well? My lord, Kafa, our father, died when we came to manhood, and my brother Imotu was made king in his place, and for a space reigned and had a son by his favorite wife. When the babe was three years old, just after the great war, during which no man could sow or reap, a famine came upon the land, and the people murmured because of the famine, and looked round like a starved lion for something to rend. Then it was that Gagool, the wise and terrible woman, who does not die, made a proclamation to the people, saying, The king Imotu is no king. And at the time Imotu was sick with a wound and lay in his kraal, not able to move. Then Gagool went into a hut and led out Twala, my half-brother and twin-brother to the king, whom she had hidden among the caves and rocks since he was born. And stripping the muka waistcloth off his loins, showed the people of the Kukuanas the mark of the sacred snake coiled round his middle, wherewith the eldest son of the king is marked at birth, and cried out loud, Behold your king, whom I have saved for you even to this day. Now the people, being mad with hunger, and altogether bereft of reason and the knowledge of truth, cried out, The king! The king! But I knew that it was not so, for Emotu, my brother, was the elder of the twins, and our lawful king. Then, just as the tumult was at its height, Emotu, the king, though he was very sick, crawled from his hut, holding his wife by the hand, and followed by his little son Ignosi, that is, by interpretation, the lightning. What is this noise? he asked. Why cry ye, the king, the king? Then Twala, his twin brother, 
born of the same woman and in the same hour, ran to him, and taking him by the hair, stabbed him through the heart with his knife. And the people, being fickle and ever ready to worship the rising sun, clapped their hands and cried, Twala is king. Now we know that Twala is king. And what became of Imotu's wife and her son Ignosi? Did Twala kill them too? Nay, my lord. When she saw that her lord was dead, the queen seized the child with a cry and ran away. Two days afterward she came to a kraal very hungry, and none would give her milk or food now that her lord the king was dead, for all men hate the unfortunate. But at nightfall a little child, a girl, crept out and brought her corn to eat, and she blessed the child, and went on towards the mountains with her boy before the sun rose again. And there she must have perished, for none have seen her since, nor the child Ignosi. Then if this child Ignosi had lived, he would be the true king of the Kukuana people? That is so, my lord, the sacred snake is round his middle. If he lives, he is king. But alas, he is long dead. See, my lord, and Infadus pointed to a vast collection of huts surrounded by a fence, which was in its turn encircled by a great ditch that lay on the plain beneath us. That is the kraal where the wife of Imotu was last seen with the child Ignosi. It is there that we shall sleep tonight, if indeed, he added doubtfully, my lord, sleep it all upon this earth. When we are among the Kukuanas, my good friend Infadus, we do as the Kukuanas do, I said majestically, and turned round quickly to address Good, who was tramping along sullenly behind, his mind fully occupied with unsatisfactory attempts to prevent his flannel shirt from flapping in the evening breeze. To my astonishment, I butted into Umbopa, who was walking along immediately behind me, and very evidently had been listening with the greatest interest to my conversation with Infadus. The expression on his face was most curious, and gave me the idea of a man who was struggling with partial success to bring something long forgotten back into his mind. All this while we had been pressing on at a good rate towards the undulating plain beneath us. The mountains we had crossed now loomed high above our heads, and Sheba's breasts were veiled modestly in diaphanous wreaths of mist. As we went, the country grew more and more lovely. The vegetation was luxuriant, without being tropical. The sun was bright and warm, but not burning. And a gracious breeze blew softly along the odorous slopes of the mountain. Indeed, this new land was little less than an earthly paradise. In beauty, in natural wealth, and in climate, I have never seen its like. The Transvaal is a fine country, but it is nothing to Kukuanaland. So soon as we started, Infadus had dispatched a runner to warn the people of the corral, which, by the way, was in his military command, of our arrival. This man had departed at an extraordinary speed, which Infadus informed me he would keep up all the way, as running was an exercise much practiced among his people. The result of this message now became apparent. 
when we arrived within two miles of the corral, we could see that company after company of men were issuing from its gates and marching towards us. Sir Henry laid his hand upon my arm and remarked that it looked as though we were going to meet with a warm reception. Something in his tone attracted Infadus's attention. "'Let not my lords be afraid,' he said hastily, "'for in my breast there dwells no guile. "'This regiment is one under my command "'and comes out by my orders to greet you.' "'I nodded easily, though I was not quite easy in my mind. "'About half a mile from the gates of this corral "'is a long stretch of rising ground "'sloping gently upward from the road, "'and here the companies formed. "'It was a splendid sight to see them, "'each company about three hundred strong.' "'charging swiftly up the rise "'with flashing spears and waving plumes "'to take their appointed places. "'By the time we reached the slope, twelve such companies, "'or in all three thousand six hundred men, "'had passed out and taken up their positions along the road. "'Presently we came to the first company "'and were able to gaze in astonishment "'on the most magnificent set of warriors "'that I have ever seen.' They were all men of mature age, mostly veterans of about forty, and not one of them was under six feet in height, whilst many stood six feet three or four. They wore upon their heads heavy black plumes of sacabula feathers, like those which adorned our guides. About their waists and beneath the right knees were bound circlets of white oxtails, while in their left hands they carried round shields measuring about Twenty inches across. These shields are very curious. The framework is made of an iron plate beaten out thin, over which is stretched milk-white ox-hide. The weapons that each man bore were simple, but most effective, consisting of a short and very heavy two-edged spear with a wooden shaft, the blade being about six inches across at the widest part. These spears are not used for throwing, but, like the Zulu Banguan, or stabbing Asagai, are for close quarters only, when the wound inflicted by them is terrible. In addition to his Banguan, every man carried three large and heavy knives, each knife weighing about two pounds. One knife was fixed in the oxtail girdle, and the other two at the back of the round shield. These knives, which are called tolas by the Cucuanas, take the place of the throwing assegai of the Zulus. The Cucuana warriors can cast them with great accuracy to a distance of fifty yards, and it is their custom on charging to hurl a volley of them at the enemy as they come to close quarters. Each company remained still as a collection of bronze statues till we were opposite to it when, at a signal given by its commanding officer, who, distinguished by a leopard-skin cloak, stood some paces in front, every spear was raised into the air, and from three hundred throats sprang forth with a sudden roar the royal salute of Kum. Then, so soon as we had passed, the company formed up behind us and followed us towards the corral, till at last the whole regiment of the greys, so-called from their white shields, the crack troops of the Kukuana people, was marching in our rear with a tread that shook the ground. At length, branching off from Solomon's great road, 
we came to the wide fosse surrounding the corral, which is at least a mile round, and fenced with a strong palisade of piles formed of the trunks of trees. At the gateway this fosse is spanned by a primitive drawbridge, which was let down by the guard to allow us to pass in. The corral is exceedingly well laid out. Through the center runs a wide pathway, intersected at right angles by other pathways, so arranged as to cut the huts into square blocks, each block being the quarters of a company. The huts are dome-shaped and built, like those of the Zulus, of a framework of wattle, beautifully thatched with grass, but unlike the Zulu huts, they have doorways through which men could walk. Also they are much larger, and surrounded by a veranda about six feet wide, beautifully paved with powdered lime trodden hard. All along each side of this wide pathway that pierces the corral were ranged hundreds of women brought out by curiosity to look at us. These women, for a native race, are exceedingly handsome. They are tall and graceful, and their figures are wonderfully fine. The hair, though short, is rather curly than woolly. The features are frequently aquiline, and the lips are not unpleasantly thick, as is the case among most African races. But what struck us most was their exceedingly quiet and dignified air. They were as well-bred in their way as the habitués of a fashionable drawing-room, and in this respect they differ from Zulu women and their cousins the Maasai, who inhabit the district beyond Zanzibar. Their curiosity had brought them out to see us, but they allowed no rude expressions of astonishment or savage criticism to pass their lips as we trudged wearily in front of them. Not even when old Infadus, with a surreptitious motion of the hand, pointed out the crowning wonder of poor Good's beautiful white legs, did they suffer the feeling of intense admiration which evidently mastered their minds to find expression. They fixed their dark eyes upon this new and snowy loveliness, for, as I think I have said, good skin is exceedingly white, and that was all, but it was quite enough for good, who is modest by nature. When we reached the center of the corral, Infadus halted at the door of a large hut, which was surrounded at a distance by a circle of smaller ones. Enter, sons of the stars, he said in a magniloquent voice and deign to rest a while in our humble habitations. A little food shall be brought to you, so that ye may have no need to draw your belts tight from hunger. Some honey and some milk, and an ox or two, and a few sheep. Not much, my lords, but still a little food. It is good, said I. In Fadus we are weary with travelling through realms of air. Now let us rest. Accordingly we entered the hut, which we found amply prepared for our comfort. Couches of tanned skins were spread for us to lie on, and water was placed for us to wash in. Presently we heard a shouting outside, and stepping to the door saw a line of damsels bearing milk and roasted mealies and honey in a pot. Behind these were some youths driving a fat young ox. We received the gifts, and then one of the young men drew the knife from his girdle and dexterously cut the ox's throat. In ten minutes it was dead, skinned, and jointed. 
The best of the meat was then cut off for us, and the rest, in the name of our party, I presented to the warriors round us, who took it and distributed the white lord's gift. Umbopa set to work, with the assistance of an extremely prepossessing young woman, to boil our portion in a large earthenware pot over a fire which was built outside the hut. And when it was nearly ready, we sent a message to Infadus and asked him and Scraga, the king's son, to join us. Presently they came, and sitting down upon little stools, of which there were several about the hut, for the Kukuanas do not, in general, squat upon their haunches like the Zulus, they helped us to get through our dinner. The old gentleman was most affable and polite, but it struck me that the young one regarded us with doubt. Together with the rest of the party, he had been overawed by our white appearance and our magic properties, but it seemed to me that, on discovering that we ate, drank, and slept like other mortals, his awe was beginning to wear off, and to be replaced by a sullen suspicion, which made me feel rather uncomfortable. In the course of our meal... Sir Henry suggested to me that it might be well to try to discover if our hosts knew anything of his brother's fate, or if they had ever seen or heard of him. But on the whole, I thought it would be wiser to say nothing of the matter at this time. It was difficult to explain a relative lost from the stars. After supper, we produced our pipes and lit them a proceeding which filled Infadus and Scraga with astonishment. The Cucuanas were evidently unacquainted with the divine delights of tobacco smoke. The herb is grown among them extensively, but, like the Zulus, they use it for snuff only, and quite fail to identify it in its new form. Presently I asked Infadus when we were to proceed on our journey, and was delighted to learn that preparations had been made for us to leave on the following morning, messengers having already departed to inform Twala the king of our coming. It appeared that Twala was at his principal place, known as Lu, making ready for the great annual feast which was to be held in the first week of June. At this gathering all the regiments, with the exception of certain detachments left behind for garrison purposes, are brought up and paraded before the king, and the great annual witch-hunt, of which more by and by, is held. We were to start at dawn, and Infadus, who was to accompany us, expected that we should reach Lu on the night of the second day, unless we were detained by accident or by swollen rivers. When they had given us this information, our visitors bade us good night, and having arranged to watch turn turn about, three of us flung ourselves down and slept the sweet sleep of the weary, whilst the fourth sat up on the lookout for possible treachery. End of chapter 8 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines, by L. Ryder Haggard, Chapter 9 Twala the King It will not be necessary for me to detail at length the incidents of our journey to Loo. It took two full days traveling along Solomon's Great Road, 
which pursued its even course right into the heart of Kukuana land. Suffice it to say that as we went, the country seemed to grow richer and richer, and the corrals, with their wide surrounding belts of cultivation, more and more numerous. They were all built upon the same principles as the first camp which we had reached, and were guarded by ample garrisons of troops. Indeed, in Kukuana land, as among the Germans, the Zulus, and the Maasai, every able-bodied man is a soldier, so that the whole force of the nation is available for its wars, offensive or defensive. As we traveled, we were overtaken by thousands of warriors hurrying up to Lu to be present at the great annual review and festival, and more splendid troops I never saw. At sunset, on the second day, we stopped to rest a while upon the summit of some heights over which the road ran, and there on a beautiful and fertile plain before us lay Lu itself. For a native town, it is an enormous place, quite five miles round, I should say, with outlying corrals projecting from it that serve on grand occasions as cantonments for the regiments, and a curious horseshoe-shaped hill, with which we were destined to become better acquainted, about two miles to the north. It is beautifully situated, and through the center of the corral, dividing it into two portions, runs a river, which appeared to be bridged in several places, the same indeed that we had seen from the slopes of Sheba's breasts. Sixty or seventy miles away, three great snow-capped mountains, placed at the points of a triangle, started out of the level plain. The conformation of these mountains is unlike that of Sheba's breasts, being sheer and precipitous instead of smooth and rounded. Enfadus saw us looking at them and volunteered a remark. The road ends there, he said, pointing to the mountains, known among the Kukuanas as the Three Witches. Why does it end? I asked. Who knows? he answered with a shrug. The mountains are full of caves, and there is a great pit between them. It is there that the wise men of old time used to go, to get whatever it was they came for to this country, and it is there now that our kings are buried in the place of death. What was it they came for? I asked eagerly. Nay, I know not. My lords who have dropped from the stars should know, he answered with a quick look. Evidently he knew more than he chose to say. Yes, I went on, you are right. In the stars we learn many things. I have heard, for instance, that the wise men of old came to these mountains to find bright stones, pretty playthings, and yellow iron. My lord is wise, he answered coldly. I am but a child and cannot talk with my lord on such matters. My lord must speak with Gagool the old at the king's place who is wise even as my lord, and he went away. So soon as he was gone, I turned to the others and pointed out the mountains. There are Solomon's diamond mines, I said. Umbopa was standing with them, apparently plunged in one of the fits of abstraction which were common to him, and caught my words. 
"'Yes, Macumazahn,' he put in, in Zulu. "'The diamonds are surely there, and you shall have them, "'since you white men are so fond of toys and money.' "'How dost that know that, Umbopa?' I asked sharply, "'for I did not like his mysterious ways. "'He laughed. "'I dreamed it in the night, white man.' Then he too turned on his heel and went. "'Now what,' said Sir Henry, "'is our black friend driving at? "'He knows more than he chooses to say, that is clear. "'By the way, Quartermain, "'has he heard anything of... of my brother?' "'Nothing. He has asked everyone he has become friendly with, "'but they all declare that no white man has ever been seen in the country before.' "'Do you suppose that he got here at all?' suggested Good. "'We have only reached the place by a miracle. "'Is it likely he could have reached it without the map?' "'I don't know,' said Sir Henry gloomily, "'but somehow I think that I shall find him.' "'Slowly the sun sank, "'then suddenly darkness rushed down on the land like a tangible thing.' There was no breathing space between the day and night, no soft transformation scene, for in these latitudes twilight does not exist. The change from day to night is as quick and as absolute as the change from life to death. The sun sank and the world was wreathed in shadows, but not for long, for see in the west there is a glow, then come rays of silver light and at last the full and glorious moon lights up the plain and shoots its gleaming arrows far and wide, filling the earth with a faint refulgence. We stood and watched the lovely sight, whilst the stars grew pale before this chastened majesty, and felt our hearts lifted up in the presence of a beauty that I cannot describe. Mine has been a rough life, but there are a few things I am thankful to have lived for, and one of them is to have seen that moon shine over Kukuanaland. Presently our meditations were broken in upon by our polite friend Infadus. If my lords are rested, we will journey on to Loo, where a hut is made ready for my lords tonight. The moon is now bright, so that we shall not fall by the way. We assented, and in an hour's time were at the outskirts of the town, of which the extent, mapped out as it was by thousands of campfires, appeared absolutely endless. Indeed, Good, who is always fond of a bad joke, christened it Unlimited Lou. Soon we came to a moat with a drawbridge, where we were met by the, the rattling of arms and the horse challenge of a sentry. Infadus gave some password that I could not catch, which was met with a salute, and we passed on through the central street of the great grass city. After nearly half an hour's tramp, past endless lines of huts, Infadus halted at last by the gate of a little group of huts which surrounded a small courtyard of powdered limestone, and informed us that these were to be our poor quarters. We entered and found that a hut had been assigned to each of us. These huts were superior to any that we had yet seen, and in each was a most comfortable bed made of tanned skins, 
spread upon mattresses of aromatic grass. Food, too, was ready for us, and so soon as we had washed ourselves with water, which stood ready in earthenware jars, some young women of handsome appearance brought us roasted meats and mealy cobs daintily served on wooden platters, and presented them to us with deep obeisances. We ate and drank, and then, the beds having been all moved into one hut by our request, a precaution at which the amiable young ladies smiled, we flung ourselves down to sleep, thoroughly wearied with our long journey. When we woke, it was to find the sun high in the heavens, and the female attendants, who did not seem to be troubled by any false shame, already standing inside the hut, having been ordered to attend and help us to make ready. Make ready, indeed, growled Good. When one has only a flannel shirt and a pair of trousers, that does not take long. I wish you would ask them for my trousers, Quartermain. I asked accordingly, but was informed that these sacred relics had already been taken to the king, who would see us in the forenoon. Somewhat to their astonishment and disappointment, having requested the young ladies to step outside, we proceeded to make the best toilet of which the circumstances admitted. Good even went the length of again shaving the right side of his face, the left on which now appeared a very fair crop of whiskers, we impressed upon him he must on no account touch. As for ourselves, we were content with a good wash and combing our hair. Sir Henry's yellow locks were now almost upon his shoulders, and he looked more like an ancient Dane than ever, while my grizzled scrub was fully an inch long instead of half an inch, which is the general way I considered my maximum length. By the time that we had eaten our breakfast and smoked a pipe, a message was brought to us by no less a personage than Infadus himself that Twala the king was ready to see us, if we would be pleased to come. We remarked in reply that we should prefer to wait till the sun was a little higher. We were yet weary with our journey, etc., etc. It is always well when dealing with uncivilized people not to be in too great a hurry. They are apt to mistake politeness for awe or servility. So, although we were quite as anxious to see Twala as Twala could be to see us, we sat down and waited for an hour, employing the interval in preparing such presents as our slender stock of goods permitted, namely, the Winchester rifle, which had been used by poor Ventvogel, and some beads. The rifle and ammunition we determined to present to His Royal Highness, and the beads were for his wives and courtiers. We had already given a few to Infadus and Skraga, and found that they were delighted with them, never having seen such things before. At length we declared that we were ready, and guided by Infadus, started off to the audience, Umbopa carrying the rifle and beads. After walking a few hundred yards, we came to an enclosure, something like that surrounding the huts which had been allotted to us, only fifty times as big, for it could not have covered less than six or seven acres of ground. 
All around the outside fence stood a row of huts which were the habitations of the king's wives. Exactly opposite the gateway, on the further side of the open space, was a very large hut built by itself in which his majesty resided. All the rest was open ground. That is to say, it would have been open had it not been filled by company after company of warriors, who were mustered there to the number of seven or eight thousand. These men stood still as statues as we advanced through them, and it would be impossible to give an adequate idea of the grandeur of the spectacle which they presented, with their waving plumes, their glancing spears, and iron-backed ox-hide shields. The space in front of the large hut was empty, but before it were placed several stools. On three of these, at a sign from Infadus, we seated ourselves, Umbopa standing behind us. As for Infadus, he took up a position by the door of the hut. So we waited for ten minutes or more in the midst of a dead silence, but conscious that we were the object of the concentrated gaze of some eight thousand pairs of eyes. It was a somewhat trying ordeal, but we carried it off as best we could. At length the door of the hut opened, and a gigantic figure, with a splendid tiger-skin carass flung over its shoulders, stepped out, followed by the boy Scraga, and what appeared to us to be a withered-up monkey wrapped in a fur cloak. The figure seated itself upon a stool. Scraga took his stand behind it, and the withered-up monkey crept on all fours into the shade of the hut and squatted down. Still there was silence. Then the gigantic figure slipped off the carass and stood up before us, a truly alarming spectacle. It was that of an enormous man, with the most entirely repulsive countenance we had ever beheld. This man's lips were as thick as a negro's. The nose was flat. He had but one gleaming black eye, for the other was represented by a hollow in the face, and his whole expression was cruel and sensual to a degree. From the large head rose a magnificent plume of white ostrich feathers. His body was clad in a shirt of shining chain armor whilst round the waist and right knee were the usual garnishes of white oxtail. In his right hand was a huge spear, about the neck a thick torque of gold, and bound on the forehead shone dully a single and enormous uncut diamond. Still there was silence, but not for long. Presently the man, whom we rightly guessed to be the king, raised the great javelin in his hand, Instantly eight thousand spears were lifted in answer, and from eight thousand throats rang out the royal salute of Kum. Three times this was repeated, and each time the earth shook with the noise that can only be compared to the deepest notes of thunder. Be humble, O people, piped out a thin voice, which seemed to come from the monkey in the shade. It is the king. It is the king, boomed out the eight thousand throats in answer. Be humble, O people, it is the king. Then there was a silence again, dead silence. 
Presently, however, it was broken. A soldier on our left dropped his shield, which fell with a clatter onto the limestone flooring. Twala turned his one cold eye in the direction of the noise. "'Come hither, thou,' he said in a cold voice. A fine young man stepped out of the ranks and stood before him. "'It was thy shield that fell, thou awkward dog. Wilt thou make me a reproach in the eyes of these strangers from the stars? What hast thou to say for thyself?' We saw the poor fellow turn pale under his dusty skin. "'It was by chance, O calf of the black cow,' he murmured. "'Then it is a chance for which thou must pay. "'Thou hast made me foolish. Prepare for death.' "'I am the king's ox,' was the low answer. "'Scraga,' roared the king, "'let me see how thou canst use thy spear.' "'Kill me, this blundering fool!' "'Scraga stepped forward with an ill-favoured grin "'and lifted his spear. "'The poor victim covered his eyes with his hand and stood still. "'As for us, we were petrified with horror. "'Once, twice, he waved the spear and then struck. "'Ah, right home!' "'The spear stood out a foot behind the soldier's back. He flung up his hands and dropped dead. From the multitude about us rose something like a murmur. It rolled round and round and died away. The tragedy was finished. There lay the corpse, and we had not yet realized that it had been enacted. Sir Henry sprang up and swore a great oath, then, overpowered by the sense of silence, sat down again. "'The thrust was a good one,' said the king. "'Take him away.' Four men stepped out of the ranks, and lifting the body of the murdered man, carried it thence. "'Cover up the bloodstains! Cover them up!' piped out the thin voice that proceeded from the monkey-like figure. "'The king's word is spoken. The king's doom is done.' Thereupon a girl came forward from behind the hut, "'bearing a jar filled with powdered lime, "'which she scattered over the red mark, blotting it from sight. "'Sir Henry, meanwhile, was boiling with rage at what had happened. "'Indeed, it was with difficulty that we could keep him still. "'Sit down, for heaven's sake,' I whispered. "'Our lives depend on it.' "'He yielded and remained quiet. "'Twala sat silent until the traces of the tragedy had been removed. "'Then he addressed us. "'White people,' he said, "'who come hither, whence I know not, and why I know not, greeting.' "'Greeting, Dwala, king of the Kukuanas,' I answered. "'White people, whence come ye, and what seek ye? "'We come from the stars, ask us not how, we come to see this land. "'Ye journey from far to see a little thing.' And that man with you, pointing to Umbopa, does he also come from the stars? Even so, there are people of thy color in the heavens above. But ask not of matters too high for thee, Twala the king. Ye speak with a loud voice, people of the stars, 
Twala answered in a tone which I scarcely liked. "'Remember that the stars are far off, and ye are here. "'How if I make you as him whom they bore away?' "'I laughed out loud, though there was little laughter in my heart. "'O king,' I said, "'be careful, walk warily over hot stones, "'lest thou shouldst burn thy feet. "'Hold the spear by the handle, "'lest thou should cut thy hands. "'Touch but one hair,' of our heads, and destruction shall come upon thee. What, have not these, pointing to Enfadus and Scraga, who, young villain that he was, was employed in cleaning the blood of the soldier off his spear? Tolly what manner of men we are, hast thou seen the like of us? And I pointed to Good, feeling quite sure that he had never seen anybody before who looked in the least like him, as he then appeared. "'It is true I have not,' said the king, surveying good with interest. "'Have they not told thee how we strike with death from afar?' I went on. "'They have told me, but I believe them not. "'Let me see you kill. "'Kill me a man among those who stand yonder.' "'And he pointed to the opposite side of the corral. "'And I will believe.' "'Nay!' I answered, we shed no blood of men except in just punishment. But if thou wilt see, bid thy servants drive in an ox through the corral gates, and before he has run twenty paces I will strike him dead. Nay, laughed the king, kill me a man, and I will believe. Good, O king, so be it, I answered coolly. Do thou walk across the open space, and before thy feet reach the gate, thou shalt be dead. Or if thou wilt not, send thy son, Scraga, whom at the moment it would have given me much pleasure to shoot. On hearing this suggestion, Scraga uttered a sort of howl and bolted into the hut. Twala frowned majestically. The suggestion did not please him. Let a young ox be driven in, he said. Two men at once departed, running swiftly. "'Now, Sir Henry,' said I, "'do you shoot. "'I want to show this ruffian "'that I am not the only magician of the party.' "'Sir Henry accordingly took his express "'and made ready. "'I hope I shall make a good shot,' he groaned. "'You must,' I answered. "'If you miss with the first barrel, "'let him have the second. "'Sight for a hundred and fifty yards.' "'and wait till the beast turns broadside on. "'Then came a pause, until presently we caught sight of an ox "'running straight for the corral gate. "'It came on through the gate, "'then catching sight of the vast concourse of people "'stopped stupidly, turned round, and bellowed. "'Now's your time,' I whispered. "'Up went the rifle. "'Bang! "'Thud, and the ox was kicking on his back, "'shot in the ribs.' The semi-hollow bullet had done its work well, and a sigh of astonishment went up from the assembled thousands. I turned round coolly. Have I lied, O king? Nay, white man, it is the truth, was the somewhat awed answer. Listen, Twala, I went on, thou hast seen. Now know we come in peace, not in war. See, and I held up the Winchester repeater. Here is a hollow staff that shall enable thee to kill, even as we kill. 
"'Only I lay this charm upon it. "'Thou shalt kill no man with it. "'If thou liftest it against a man, it shall kill thee. "'Stay, I will show thee.' "'Bid a soldier step forty paces "'and place the shaft of a spear in the ground "'so that the flat blade looks towards us.' In a few seconds it was done. Now, see, I will break yonder spear. Taking a careful sight, I fired. The bullet struck the flat of the spear and shattered the blade into fragments. Again the sigh of astonishment went up. Now, Twala, we give this magic tube to thee, and by and by I will show thee how to use it. "'but beware how thou turnest the magic of the stars against a man of earth.' "'And I handed him the rifle. "'The king took it very gingerly and laid it down at his feet. "'As he did so, I observed the wizened monkey-like figure "'creeping from the shadow of the hut. "'It crept on all fours, but when it reached the place where the king sat, "'it rose upon its feet, and throwing the furry covering from its face "'revealed a most extraordinary and weird countenance.' Apparently it was that of a woman of great age, so shrunken that in size it seemed no larger than the face of a year-old child, although made up of a number of deep and yellow wrinkles. Set in these wrinkles was a sunken slit that represented the mouth, beneath which the chin curved outwards to a point. There was no nose to speak of. Indeed, the visage might have been taken for that of a sun-dried corpse, had it not been for a pair of large black eyes, still full of fire and intelligence, which gleamed and played under the snow-white eyebrows, and the projecting parchment-colored skull, like jewels in a charnel-house. As for the head itself, it was perfectly bare and yellow in hue, while its wrinkled scalp moved and contracted like the hood of a cobra. The figure to which this fearful countenance belonged a countenance so fearful indeed that it caused a shiver of fear to pass through us as we gazed at it, stood still for a moment. Then suddenly it projected a skinny claw armed with nails nearly an inch long, and laying it on the shoulder of Twala the king, began to speak in a thin and piercing voice. Listen, O king, listen, O warriors, listen, O mountains and plains and rivers, home of the Kukuana race. Listen, O skies and sun, O rain and storm and mist. Listen, O men and women, O youths and maidens, and O ye babes unborn. Listen, all things that live and must die. Listen, all dead things that shall live again, again to die. Listen, the spirit of life is in me, and I prophesy, I prophesy. I prophesy. The words died away in a faint wail, and dread seemed to seize upon the hearts of all who heard them, including our own. This old woman was very terrible. Blood, 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 rivers of blood, blood everywhere. I see it, I smell it, I taste it. It is salt. It runs red upon the ground. It rains down from the skies. Footsteps, 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 the tread of the white man coming from afar. It shakes the earth, the earth trembles before her master. 
blood is good, the red blood is bright. There is no smell like the smell of new-shed blood. The lions shall lap it and roar. The vultures shall wash their wings in it and shriek with joy. I am old. I am old. I have seen much blood. <laughs> but I shall see more ere I die and be merry. How old am I, think ye? Your fathers knew me, and their fathers knew me, and their fathers' fathers' fathers. I have seen the white man and know his desires. I am old, but the mountains are older than I. Who made the great road, tell me? Who wrote the pictures on the rocks, tell me? Who reared up the three silent ones yonder that gaze across the pit, tell me? And she pointed towards the three precipitous mountains which we had noticed on the previous night. Ye know not, but I know. It was the white people who were here before ye are. Who shall be here when ye are not? Who shall eat you up and destroy you? Yea, yea, yea. And what came they for, the white ones, the terrible ones, the skilled in magic and all learning, the strong, the unswerving? What is that bright stone upon thy forehead, O king? Whose hands made the iron garment upon thy breast, O king? Ye know not, but I know, I the old one, I the wise one, I the Isanusi, the witch doctress. Then she turned her bald vulture head towards us. What seek ye, white man of the stars? Ah, yes, of the stars. Do ye seek a lost one? Ye shall not find him here. He is not here. Never for ages upon ages has a white foot pressed this land. Never except once, and I remember that he left it but to die. Ye come for bright stones, I know it, I know it. Ye shall find them when the blood is dry. But ye shall return whence ye came, or shall ye stop with me? <laughs> and thou, thou with the dark skin and the proud bearing, and she pointed her skinny finger at Umbopa, who art thou, and what seekest thou? Not stones that shine, not yellow metal that gleams, these thou leavest to white men from the stars. Methinks I know thee. Methinks I can smell the smell of the blood in thy heart. Strip off thy girdle. Here the features of this extraordinary creature became convulsed, and she fell to the ground, foaming in an epileptic fit, and was carried into the hut. The king rose up trembling and waved his hand. Instantly the regiments began to file off, and in ten minutes, save for ourselves, the king, and a few attendants, the great space was left empty. White people, he said, it passes in my mind to kill you. Gagool has spoken strange words, what say ye? I laughed. Be careful, O king, we are not easy to slay. Thou hast seen the fate of the ox. Wouldst thou be as the ox is? The king frowned. It is not well to threaten the king. We threaten not. We speak what is true. Try to kill us, O king, and learn. The great savage put his hand to his forehead and thought. Go in peace, 
he said at length. "'Tonight is the great dance. Ye shall see it. Fear not that I shall set a snare for you. Tomorrow I will think.' "'It is well, O king,' I answered unconcernedly, and then, accompanied by Infadus, we rose and went back to our corral. End of chapter 9 this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by L. Ryder Haggard Chapter 10 The Witch Hunt On reaching our tent, I motioned to Infadus to enter with us. Now, Infidus, I said, we would speak with thee. But my lord say on. It seems to us, Infidus, that Twala the king is a cruel man. It is so, my lords. Alas, the land cries out because of his cruelties. Tonight you shall see. It is the great witch hunt, and many will be smelt out as wizards and slain. No man's life is safe. If the king covets a man's cattle or a man's wife, or if he fears a man that he should excite a rebellion against him, then Gagool, whom he saw, or some of the witch-finding women whom she has taught, will smell that man out as a wizard, and he will be killed. Many must die before the moon grows pale tonight. It is ever so. Perhaps I, too, shall be killed. As yet, I have been spared, because I am skilled in war, and am beloved by the soldiers. But I know not how long I have to live. The land groans at the cruelties of Twala, the king. It is wearied of him and his red ways. Then why is it, Infadus, that the people do not cast him down? Nay, my lords, he is the king. And if he were killed, Scragga would reign in his place. And the heart of Scragga is blacker than the heart of Twala, his father. If Scragga were king, his yoke upon our neck would be heavier than the yoke of Twala. If Imotu had never been slain, or if Ignosi, his son, had lived, it might have been otherwise. But they are both dead. How knowest thou that Ignosi is dead? said a voice behind us. We looked round astonished to see who spoke. It was Umbopa. What meanest thou, boy? asked Infadus. Who told thee to speak? Listen, Infadus, was the answer, and I will tell thee a story. Years ago the king Imotu was killed in this country, and his wife fled with the boy Ignosi. Is it not so? It is so. It was said that the woman and her son died upon the mountains. Is it not so? It is even so. Well, it came to pass that the mother and the boy Ignosi did not die. They crossed the mountains and were led by a tribe of wandering desert men across the sands beyond, till at last they came to water and grass and trees again. How knowest thou this? Listen, they traveled on and on, many months' journey, 
till they reached a land where a people called the Amazulu, who are also of the Kukuana stock, lived by war, and with them they tarried many years, till at length the mother died. Then the son Ignosi became a wanderer again, and journeyed into a land of wonders where white people live, and for many more years he learned the wisdom of the white people. It is a pretty story, said Infadus incredulously. For years he lived there, working as a servant and a soldier, but holding in his heart all that his mother had told him of his own place, and casting about in his mind to find how he might journey thither to see his people and his father's house before he died. For long years he lived and waited, and at last the time came, as it ever comes to him who can wait for it, and he met some white men who would seek this unknown land, and joined himself to them. The white men started and traveled on and on, seeking for one who was lost. They crossed the burning desert, they crossed the snow-clad mountains, and at last reached the land of the Kukuanas, and there they found thee, O Infadus. Surely thou art mad to talk thus, said the astonished old soldier. Thou thinkest so. See, I will show thee, O my uncle. I am Ignosi, rightful king of the Kukuanas. Then with a single movement Umbopa slipped off his muka or girdle and stood naked before us. Look, he said, what is this? and he pointed to the picture of a great snake tattooed in blue round his middle, its tail disappearing into its open mouth just above where the thighs are set into the body. Infadus looked, his eyes starting nearly out of his head. Then he fell upon his knees. Coom, coom, he ejaculated. It is my brother's son. It is the king. Did I not tell thee so, my uncle? Rise, I am not yet the king, but with thy help, and with the help of these brave white men, who are my friends, I shall be. Yet the old witch Gagul was right, the land shall run with blood first, and hers shall run with it, if she has any, and can die, for she killed my father with her words, and drove my mother forth. And now, Infadus, choose now. Will thou put thy hands between my hands and be my man? Will thou share the dangers that lie before me, and help me to overthrow this tyrant and murderer, or will thou not choose thou? The old man put his hand to his head and thought. Then he rose, and advancing to where Umbopa, or rather Ignosi, stood, he knelt before him and took his hand. Ignosi, rightful king of the Kukuanas, I put my hand between thy hands, and am thy man till death. When thou wast a babe, I dandle thee upon my knees. Now shall my old arm strike for thee and freedom. It is well, Infadus. If I conquer, thou shalt be the greatest man in the kingdom, after the king. 
If I fail, thou canst only die, and death is not far off from thee. Rise, my uncle. And ye, ye white men, will ye help me? What have I to offer you? The white stones. If I conquer and can find them, ye shall have as many as ye can carry hence. Will that suffice you? I translated this remark. Tell him, answered Sir Henry, that he mistakes an Englishman. Wealth is good, and if it comes in our way, we will take it. But a gentleman does not sell himself for wealth. Still, speaking for myself, I say this. I have always liked Umbopa, and so far as lies in me, I will stand by him in this business. It will be very pleasant to me to try to square matters with that cruel devil Twala. What do you say, good, and you, Quartermain? Well, said Good, to adopt the language of hyperbole, in which all these people seem to indulge, you can tell that a row is surely good, and warms the cockles of the heart, and that so far as I am concerned, I am his boy. My only stipulation is that he allows me to wear trousers. I translated the substance of these answers. It is well, my friends, said Ignosi, late Umbopa. And what sayest thou, Macumazan? Art thou also with me, old hunter, cleverer than a wounded buffalo? I thought a while and scratched my head. Umbopa, or Ignosi, I said, I don't like revolutions. I am a man of peace and a bit of a coward. Here Umbopa smiled. But on the other hand, I stick up for my friends, Ignosi. You have stuck to us and played the part of a man, and I will stick by you. But mind you, I am a trader and have to make my living, so I accept your offer about those diamonds in case we should ever be in position to avail ourselves of it. Another thing, we came, as you know, to look for Inkubu, Sir Henry's lost brother. You must help us to find him. That I will do, answered Ignosi. Stay, Infadus, by the sign of the snake about my middle, tell me the truth. Has any white man, to thy knowledge, set his foot within the land? None, O Ignosi. If any white man had been seen or heard of, wouldst thou have known? I should certainly have known. Thou hearest, Inkubu, said Ignosi to Sir Henry. He has not been here. Well, well, said Sir Henry with a sigh. There it is. I suppose that he never got so far. Poor fellow, poor fellow. So it has all been for nothing. God's will be done. Now for business, I put in, anxious to escape from a painful subject. It is very well to be a king by right divine, Ignosi, but how does thou propose to become a king indeed? Nay, I know not, Infadus. Hast thou a plan? Ignosi, son of the lightning, 
answered his uncle. "'Tonight is the great dance and witch-hunt. "'Many shall be smelt out and perish, "'and in the hearts of many others "'there will be grief and anguish "'and fury against the King Twala. "'When the dance is over, "'then I will speak to some of the great chiefs, "'who in turn, if I can win them over, "'will speak to their regiments. "'I shall speak to the chiefs softly at first, "'and bring them to see that thou art indeed the king.' and I think that by tomorrow's light thou shalt have twenty thousand spears at thy command. And now I must go and think, and hear, and make ready. After the dance is done, if I am yet alive, and we are all alive, I will meet thee here, and we can talk. At best there must be war." At this moment our conference was interrupted by the cry that messengers had come from the king. Advancing to the door of the hut, we ordered that they should be admitted, and presently three men entered, each bearing a shining shirt of chain armor and a magnificent battle axe. "'The gifts of my lord, the king, to the white men from the stars,' said a herald who came with them. "'We thank the king,' I answered. "'Withdraw.' "'The men went, and we examined the armor with great interest. "'It was the most wonderful chain-work that either of us had ever seen. "'A whole coat fell together so closely that it formed a mass of links, "'scarcely too big to be covered with both hands. "'Do you make these things in this country, in Fadus? I asked. "'They are very beautiful.' "'Nay, my lord, they came down to us from our forefathers. "'We know not who made them, and there are but few left.' "'Editor's Note "'In the Sudan, swords and coats of mail are still worn by Arabs "'whose ancestors must have stripped them from the bodies of crusaders. "'None but those of royal blood may be clad in them. "'They are magic coats through which no spear can pass.' and those who wear them are well-nigh safe in the battle. The king is well-pleased, or much afraid, or he would not have sent these garments of steel. Clothe yourselves in them tonight, my lords. The remainder of that day we spent quietly, resting and talking over the situation, which was sufficiently exciting. At last the sun went down, the thousand watch-fires glowed out, and through the darkness we heard the tramp of many feet and the clashing of hundreds of spears as the regiments passed to their appointed places to be ready for the great dance. Then the full moon shone out in splendor, and as we stood watching her rays, Infadus arrived, clad in his war dress, and accompanied by a guard of twenty men to escort us to the dance. As he recommended, we had already donned the shirts of chain armor which the king had sent us, putting them on under our ordinary clothing, and finding to our surprise that they were neither very heavy nor uncomfortable. These steel shirts, which evidently had been made for men of a very large stature, hung somewhat loosely upon Good and myself, but Sir Henry's fitted his magnificent frame like a glove. Then, strapping our revolvers round our waists, 
and taking in our hands the battle-axes which the king had sent with the armor, we started. On arriving at the great corral, where we had that morning been received by the king, we found that it was closely packed with some twenty thousand men arranged round it in regiments. These regiments were, in turn, divided into companies, and between each company ran a little path to allow space for the witch-finders to pass up and down. Anything more imposing than the sight that was presented by this vast and orderly concourse of armed men, it is impossible to conceive. There they stood, perfectly silent, and the moon poured her light upon the forest of their raised spears, upon their majestic forms, waving plumes, and the harmonious shading of their various colored shields. Wherever we looked were line upon line of dim faces surrounded by range upon range of shimmering spears. Surely, I said to Enfadus, the whole army is here. Nay, Macumazan, he answered, but a third of it. One third is present at this dance each year. Another third is mustered outside in case there should be trouble when the killing begins. Ten thousand more garrison the outposts round Lou, and the rest watch at the corrals in the country. Thou seest, it is a great people. They are very silent, said Good, and indeed the intense stillness among such a vast concourse of living men was almost overpowering. What says Buguan? asked Infadus. I translated. Those over whom the shadow of death is hovering are silent, he answered grimly. Will many be killed? Very many. It seems, I said to the others, that we are going to assist at a gladiatorial show arranged regardless of expense. Sir Henry shivered, and Good said that he wished we could get out of it. Tell me, I asked Infadus, are we in danger? I know not, my lords, I trust not. But do not seem afraid. If ye live through the night, all may go well with you. The soldiers murmur against the king. All this while we had been advancing steadily towards the center of the open space, in the midst of which were placed some stools. As we proceeded, we perceived another small party coming from the direction of the royal hut. It is the king, Twala, Scraga, his son, and Gagul, the old. And see, with them are those who slay, said Infadus, pointing to a little group of about a dozen gigantic and savage-looking men, armed with spears in one hand and heavy carries in the other. The king seated himself upon the center stool. Gagul crouched at his feet, and the other stood behind him. "'Greeting, white lords,' Twala cried as we came up. "'Be seated. Waste not precious time. The night is all too short for the deeds that must be done. Ye come in a good hour, and shall see a glorious show.' Look round, white lords, look round, and he rolled his one wicked eye from regiment to regiment. Can the stars show you such a sight as this? 
See how they shake in their wickedness, all those who have evil in their hearts, and fear the judgment of heaven above. Begin, begin, piped Gagool in her thin, piercing voice. The hyenas are hungry. They howl for food. Begin, begin. For a moment there was intense stillness, made horrible by a presage of what was to come. The king lifted his spear, and suddenly twenty thousand feet were raised, as though they belonged to one man, and brought down with a stamp upon the earth. This was repeated three times, causing the solid ground to shake and tremble. Then from a far point of the circle a solitary voice began a wailing song, of which the refrain ran something as follows. What is the lot of man born of women? Back came the answer rolling out from every throat in that vast company. Death! Gradually, however, the song was taken up by company after company, till the whole armed multitude were singing it, and I could no longer follow the words except in so far as they appeared to represent various phases of human passions, fears, and joys. Now it seemed to be a love song, now a majestic swelling war chant, and last of all a death dirge, ending suddenly in one heart-breaking wail that went echo and rolling away in a volume of blood-curdling sound. Again silence fell upon the place, and again it was broken by the king lifting his hand. Instantly we heard a pattering of feet, and from out of the masses of warriors strange and awful figures appeared running towards us. As they drew near we saw that these were women, most of them aged, for their white hair, ornamented with small bladders taken from fish, streamed out behind them. Their faces were painted in stripes of white and yellow. Down their backs hung snake skins, and round their waists rattled circlets of human bones, while each held a small forked wand in her shriveled hand. In all there were ten of them. When they arrived in front of us, they halted, and one of them, pointing with her wand towards the crouching figure of Gagul, cried out, Mother, old mother, we are here. Good, 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 answered that aged iniquity. Are your eyes keen, Isanusis, witch doctresses, ye seers in dark places? Mother, they are keen. Good, good, good. Are your ears open, Isanusis, ye who hear words that come not from the tongue? Mother, they are open. Good, good, good. Are your senses awake, Isanusis? Can ye smell blood? Can ye purge the land of the wicked ones who compass evil against the king and against their neighbors? Are you ready to do justice of heaven above, ye whom I have taught, who have eaten of the bread of my wisdom, and drunk of the water of my magic? Mother, we can. Then go. Tarry not, ye vultures. See, the slayers, pointing to the ominous group of executioners behind. Make sharp their spears. The white men from afar are hungry to see. Go. 
With a wild yell, Gagool's horrid ministers broke away in every direction, like fragments from a shell, the dry bones round their waists rattling as they ran, and headed for various points of the dense human circle. We could not watch them all, so we fixed our eyes upon the Isanusi nearest to us. When she came to within a few paces of the warriors, she halted and began to dance wildly, turning round and round with an almost incredible rapidity, and shrieking out sentences such as, I smell him, the evil doer. He is near, he who poisoned his mother. I hear the thoughts of him who thought evil of the king. Quicker and quicker she danced, till she lashed herself into such a frenzy of excitement that the foam flew in specks from her gnashing jaws, till her eyes seemed to start from her head and her flesh to quiver visibly. Suddenly she stopped dead and stiffened all over, like a pointed dog when he scents game. And then, with outstretched wand, she began to creep stealthily towards the soldiers before her. It seemed to us that as she came their stoicism gave way, and that they shrank from her. As for ourselves, we followed her movements with a horrible fascination. Presently, still creeping and crouching like a dog, the Isanusi was before them. Then she halted and pointed, and again crept on a pace or two. Suddenly the end came. With a shriek, she sprang in and touched a tall warrior with her forked wand. Instantly, two of his comrades, those standing immediately next to him, seized the doomed man, each by one arm, and advanced with him towards the king. He did not resist, but we saw that he dragged his limbs as though they were paralyzed, and that his fingers, from which the spear had fallen, were limp like those of a man newly dead. As he came, two of the villainous executioners stepped forward to meet him. Presently they met, and the executioners turned round, looking towards the king as though for orders. "'Kill,' said the king. "'Kill!' squeaked Gagool. "'Kill!' re-echoed Scraga with a hollow chuckle. Almost before the words were uttered, the horrible deed was done. One man had driven his spear into the victim's heart, and to make assurance double sure, the other had dashed out his brains with a great club. One counted Twala the king, just like a black Madame Defarge, as Good said, and the body was dragged a few paces away and stretched out. Hardly was the thing done before another poor wretch was brought up like an ox to the slaughter. This time we could see, from the leopard-skin cloak which he wore, that the man was a victim of rank. Again the awful syllables were spoken, and the victim fell. Two, counted the king. And so the deadly game went on, till about a hundred bodies were stretched in rows behind us. I have heard of the gladiatorial shows of the Caesars and of the Spanish bullfights, but I take the liberty of doubting if either of them could be half so horrible as this Cucuana witch-hunt. Gladiatorial shows and Spanish bullfights, at any rate, 
contributed to the public amusement, which certainly was not the case here. The most confirmed sensation-monger would fight shy of sensation if he knew that it was well on the cards that he would, in his own proper person, be the subject of the next event. Once we rose and tried to remonstrate, but were sternly repressed by Twala. Let the law take its course, white men. These dogs are magicians and evildoers. It is well that they should die, was the only answer vouchsafed to us. About half past ten there was a pause. The witch-finders gathered themselves together, apparently exhausted with their bloody work, and we thought that the performance was done with. But it was not so, for presently, to our surprise, the ancient woman, Gagool, rose from her crouching position, and, supporting herself with a stick, staggered off into the open space. It was an extraordinary sight to see this frightful, vulture-headed old creature, bent nearly double with extreme age, gather strength by degrees, until at last she rushed about almost as actively as her ill-omened pupils. To and fro she ran, chanting to herself, till suddenly she made a dash at a tall man standing in front of one of the regiments and touched him. As she did this, a sort of groan went up from the regiment, which evidently he commanded. But two of its officers seized him all the same and brought him up for execution. We learned afterwards that he was a man of great wealth and importance, being indeed a cousin of the king. He was slain, and Twala counted one hundred and three. Then Gagool again sprang to and fro, gradually drawing nearer and nearer to ourselves. "'Hang me if I don't believe she is going to try her games on us!' ejaculated Good in horror. "'Nonsense,' said Sir Henry. "'As for myself, when I saw that old fiend dancing nearer and nearer, "'my heart positively sank into my boots. "'I glanced behind us at the long row of corpses and shivered. "'Nearer and nearer waltzed Gagool, "'looking for all the world like an animated crooked stick or comma, "'her horrid eyes gleaming and glowing with a most unholy luster.' Nearer she came, and yet nearer, every creature in that vast assemblage watching her movements with intense anxiety. At last she stood still and pointed. "'Which is it to be?' asked Sir Henry to himself. In a moment all doubts were at rest, for the old hag had rushed in and touched Umbopa, alias Ignosi, on the shoulder. "'I smell him out!' she shrieked. "'Kill him! Kill him! He is full of evils! Kill him! The stranger! Before blood flows from him! Slay him, O king!' There was a pause, of which I instantly took advantage. "'O king!' I called out, rising from my seat. "'This man is the servant of thy guests. He is their dog. "'Whosoever sheds the blood of our dog sheds our blood.' By the sacred law of hospitality, I claim protection for him. 
Gagool, mother of the witch-finders, has smelt him out. He must die, white men, was the sullen answer. Nay, he shall not die, I replied. He who tries to touch him shall die indeed. Seize him, roared Twala to the executioners, who stood round red to the eyes with the blood of their victims. They advanced towards us and then hesitated. As for Ignosi, he clutched his spear and raised it as though determined to sell his life dearly. Stand back, ye dogs, I shouted. If you would see tomorrow's light, touch one hair of his head and your king dies. And I covered Twala with my revolver. Sir Henry and Good also drew their pistols, Sir Henry pointing his at the leading executioner who was advancing to carry out the sentence, and Good taking a deliberate aim at Gagool. Twala winced perceptibly as my barrel came in a line with his broad chest. Well, I said, what is it to be, Twala? Then he spoke. Put away your magic tubes, he said. Ye have adjured me in the name of hospitality, and for that reason, but not from fear of what ye can do, I spare him. Go in peace. It is well, I answered unconcernedly. We are weary of slaughter and would sleep. Is the dance ahead? It is ended, Twala answered sulkily. Let these dead dogs, pointing to the long row of corpses, be flung out to the hyenas and the vultures. And he lifted his spear. Instantly the regiments began to defile through the corral gateway in perfect silence, a fatigue party only remaining behind to drag away the corpses of those who had been sacrificed. Then we rose also, and making our salam to his majesty, which he hardly deigned to acknowledge, we departed to our huts. Well, said Sir Henry as we sat down, having first lit a lamp of the sort used by the Kukuanas, of which the wick is made from the fiber of a species of palm leaf and the oil from clarified hippopotamus fat. Well, I feel uncommonly inclined to be sick. If I had any doubts about helping Umbopa to rebel against that infernal blackguard, put in good, they are gone now. It was as much as I could do to sit still while that slaughter was going on. I tried to keep my eyes shut, but they would open just at the wrong time. I wonder where Infadus is. Umbopa, my friend, you ought to be grateful to us. Your skin came near to having an air hole made in it. I am grateful, Buguan, was Umbopa's answer when I had translated. And I shall not... Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Forget. As for Infadus, 
He will be here by and by. We must wait. So we lit our pipes and waited. End of chapter 10